Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hate. Verb. Feel an intense dislike for. Example, the boys hate each other. Similar, loathe, detest, dislike greatly, abhor, despise. Just some of the other words you could use to describe how I feel about Ireland. As I have been led to believe by apparently literally anyone. That's that's a low blow at the start of this podcast. Here's the thing, right? We're about to spend an entire episode, an entire going off how long these are getting. Like six hours? Yeah, yeah, minimum. Talking about a game in which Ireland were pretty woeful and kept shooting themselves in the foot. <laughs> Love! <which> Ireland <laughs> came out looking really, really fired up, really, really going for it, you know, really, really committed and going at it and looking like this mattered to them and then just constantly, constantly shooting themselves in the foot. Yeah. And here's the thing, right? Literally anything I say, whether it mentions Ireland or not, gets taken as some sort of reasoning that I hate Ireland. Me saying that Hannah Jones' try against Ireland was my favourite moment of last year's Six Nation, Women's Six Nations was said because I hate Ireland. Someone was genuinely saying that the other day. I could say, isn't it great that sometimes they have mints in food and someone will go, oh, it's just because you bloody, you hate potatoes and therefore Ireland. And I'd be like, well, why would I didn't mention potato? Because I didn't want to bring it to a stereotype. They'd be like, oh, it's just because you hate Ireland. Do you want so, listening mad? What? We're recording this, ep- this episode of the podcast early because I'm going to Ireland. Yes. the time we would usually be recording it. Yes. Because I I'm love Ireland. Yeah. yeah, you're not going. Here's the I thing. I invited you, obviously, to go to Ireland. I didn't. But I, I always really liked Ireland until I got told over and over for several years that I hated Ireland. And eventually it starts to eat away at you. Not that I hate Ireland now, but just the like, I'm tired of being told that I hate Ireland. If I did hate Ireland, it would be because of this. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I'm going to Ireland. I've been to Ireland once before. Uh, I've Mm. been to the same area of Ireland. I'm going to a place called Dublin. 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 It's sublime there. Is it in Dublin? Yeah, I've yes. been there before. Yeah, it's, it's all right. It's pretty good. It was pretty good last time I went. But I was fourteen or something last time I went. I went on a rugby tour. I went to the RDS to go and watch Ethan Athaywa play rugby, and he played pretty well at rugby. Uh, he actually got man of the match in that game. It was a game against Edinburgh uh, yeah. in the Magnus League, as it would have been at the time, and he absolutely tore up. Uh, what's his name? The uh, Brendan Macken scored on what Brendan I assume Macken, was like one of his first solid player games. And I remember that I hadn't heard of him. I think Dave Carney scored as well. And I think Leo Ovar scored, if you remember him. Mm. 
Mm, I do, I do, I There's do. There's my memory of that. But the thing is, at this point, Oops. I was having to like pretend I didn't know who any of these guys were. Other than Brendan Macken, who I actually didn't know who he was. And when he scored, mm. uh, I remember I turned to the guy next to me and went, who's that? And he was like, yeah, good question. Who is that? I don't know. And I was like, oh, wait, no, you don't know who Dave Carney and Ethan Othello are either. <laughs> like, like, you're just normal in not knowing that. Whereas I was there like, I can't believe I've never heard of this guy. And he'd never heard of any of them. I've got a better question. Yeah? Who are you? Oh, great question. As far as I'm aware, my sources tell me that my name is Will Owen. How about you? Because oh, I have a few theories for who you might be, what your name might be. Can you help me with that? Yes. I mean, most of them are correct. I'm Robbie Squidge, whatever you call me. And so whatever today, I want to call you. Please, whatever you want to call me, within reason. But that's a bit long-winded to add to All your right, name. Ireland, um, finally someone's found my reddit alt so we are here today to talk about france's 25 free win over ireland from the 2007 rugby world cup the second most notable and good best game between these two teams of 2007 so was this the year where vance Clair scored the winning try in the last yes. minute of the game in yes Dublin? vance Clair scored Dublin, it blind, sorry. right at the death in what otherwise would have been a Grand Slam for Ireland. Okay. Would have been their second ever Grand Slam if Van Sonclair hadn't scored in the final passage of play. Yeah. That is pure bastardry from Van yep. Sonclair. That's daylight robbery of a Grand Slam. Did Ireland, Ireland still win the championship? No, they lost it on points difference to France oh. by four points. Fair play, Van Sonclair. Like, it's not like he just stole it from Ireland and, like, England won it or something. Yeah, Like, yeah. he won it for his own nation, and that is heroic. It's an incredible historic game, the sort mm. that we'd be desperately looking forward to if we're doing a Six Nations retrospective. Yeah. But we aren't. For a long time. But we have I think a lot of Reese Witherspoon movies to watch before we get there. That led to, when people looked at the fixtures coming into this tournament, this was one of the standouts. Yeah, Those two were comfortably the two best teams in Europe, France and Ireland at the time. Sound familiar, going into a World Cup in France, where Indeed. England and Wales are just sat their coaches and don't quite look up to it. You know, does that sound familiar to anyone? Andy Robinson recently lost a job. Sound familiar to anyone? <laughs> yeah, I think Portugal people are going. slightly less on that. Yeah. Alan Jones is going. Alan yeah. Jones, that's it, isn't it? I was about to say Carol Thomas was still playing. It's too soon, man. She's not only relevant. just retired. Yeah. yeah. So... Yeah, very, very similar circumstances to this year. People had this earmark, those two being in the same pool, as potentially one of the games of the tournament, one of the big standout games, because it could go either way. We saw oh, Fran Stein, he's the other player who's going. Sorry. Fran Stein, he's injured. He's not yeah. Brought out. But yeah, anyway, carry on. So it looked very much like this was going to be a game, big, big game to watch. And it got even more dramatic and even more notable once we got through the first few rounds of this pool stage, and France lost to Argentina in the opening match, which was absolutely enormous. And Ireland, though they came in with two wins from two against Namibia and Georgia, they really struggled in both games. Yeah, both of them have been, well, the Namibia game was discussed as one of Namibia's best ever Rugby World Cup performances because Mm. they made Ireland look extremely ordinary in that game, Um, particularly Vitboy, who set up that try for Niven House. 
And then the Georgia game was described by many as Ireland's worst ever Rugby World Cup performance, one of their worst ever performances in Rugby Union, because they still won the game, but they only just crept past Georgia, which obviously we covered a couple of weeks ago. So Ireland haven't covered themselves in glory so far. And this game really, really helped their image, I think. Ronan O'Gara described that Georgia game as the low light of his career. Yeah, the worst point. As he said in his autobiography, it felt like if we lost it, it would have been the worst day in Irish rugby history. But yeah. winning it still felt like the worst day in Irish rugby history. <laughs> Which is a really good line. Yeah. But like, I think off the back of those two games, there's a lot of world-class players in Ireland. Yeah. That even the, in this game, when I saw them on the team sheet and when I saw them for the first five minutes after kickoff, I was looking at them and going like, oh, you're all right. Rather hmm. than, oh, this is one of the best rugby players I've ever seen. Like, Paul O'Connell is one of the best rugby players I've ever watched play. Yeah. Of the era I've been watching rugby, if I were to pick the top 25 rugby players I've watched hmm. in that period, Paul O'Connell would be an absolute shoo-in, if not top 10, frankly. He's absolutely world-class and has been for most of his career, certainly the entire time I watched him play. If you're picking the best locks of the 21st century of the professional era, he's absolutely in the top five. He's absolutely in there. And yet, you're looking when at this game... him, Matt Field, Alan Wynne Jones. Yes, exactly. Um, and then probably, like, I don't know, Maybe I've never heard Eben of Ebenet. What's that Kiwi guy? Uh, Brody Ronk Donk and yeah. Samuel uh, Whitlock. Yeah, um, yeah, those guys. Those, yeah, those guys. guys. But in the five minutes after kickoff in here, I looked and at Paul O'Connell and thought, yes. I looked at Paul O'Connell and thought, like, oh, that's Paul O'Connell. That's quite good. That's good to see him. Rather yeah, than like, yeah. oh my God, I get to watch Paul O'Connell play. Again, yeah. Which is a feeling I often get when watching my favourite players and the best players back on this podcast. I was like, oh yeah, cool. Paul O'Connell's playing rather than being blown away. The thing is, right, this is the team that was infamously talked about as Ireland's golden generation because they had a rubbish team in the 90s. Then pretty much at once, O'Connell, O'Gara, O'Driscoll arrive. You've got Gordon yeah. Darcy comes along almost straight after. O'Callaghan. O'Callaghan. You've got John Hayes who goes for a billion years either side. Yes. You've got Jerry Flannery comes along shortly afterwards. Rory Best. No. He's not playing here, but like he's yeah. in that generation. It's just this incredible generation of Irish players that all come along at once, yeah. pretty much. You know, there's kind of inside five years of each other, they produce 15 really, really great athletes. And it isn't like nowadays where they have an endless production line of people being produced from these same few Dublin schools, plus yeah. the odd Munster player. What you had then was just like a generation that happened to appear at once, a bit like Scotland, sure. I think, have just had. And you can argue if they are having at the minute, but hmm. we'll see how that production line continues. Yes. And this was them pretty much at their best. We're pretty much looking at career best form for a lot of this team, either side of this World Cup, which yeah. is what makes it so interesting. We've talked about this in the past, but Munster won the 2006 and 2008 Heineken Cups, and most of this pack is Munster. It's largely Munster players. You know? You're looking at only Simon Easterby with the Scarlets as the only non-Munster player which in is starting eight. And then the back line, you've got O'Gara, also in there, who was very much the kind of driving force in that yeah. side. And, and then you've got like, most he of the backs. was the centerpiece of this team still, I think. Yeah. Most of the backs then are from the Leinster team that go on to win the Heineken Cup in a couple of years' time. Yeah. They're building towards that and go on to win it's it. All of them other than Andrew Trimble, isn't it? And O'Gara. Yes. And O'Gara. Yeah. Because if look, if we're looking at that island team, right, there is one absolutely huge call in this team. One huge decision that Eddie O'Sullivan makes, which is that for only the second time in his career, he drops Peter Stringer. 
Yeah, and like Stringer and O'Gara is something you take for granted when watching this era of Ireland, isn't it? Like, those two as a combination are just next level. Like, they have... Name me a halfback combination in this era of rugby who know each other better than O'Gara and Stringer. Can you Hmm. name one? No, there isn't. There isn't at all. I guess you could argue like Troncon Dominguez kind of thing, but like still, I think not to the same extent. Yeah. Well, so the extraordinary thing about this, right, is that obviously they played together at club level, Stringer and O'Gara, but Peter Stringer made his debut in 2000 for Ireland. Between then and this World Cup, he started 76 of 84 games for Ireland. That's ridiculous. And only one of those nine games where he didn't play was he fit. Wow. So he was selected for... 75 of 76 games he was available from his debut onwards. That's ludicrous. Do you think this was because he threw that interception pass against Georgia? Yes, I do. I think it's purely reaction. He was scapegoated. That's it, because that was where my reaction went. And actually, like we discussed this having watched the game. Mm. We agreed that Stringer didn't have a bad game. He did two or three shit things, which is so uncharacteristic of him, because what he does is just he is very solid you know he will do what you want of a scrum half he will kick the ball to the right place and he will pass the ball to the right place he had one game where he didn't quite do that against georgia and you're right he's been scapegoated you know he pulled out the bag wouldn't you yeah stuart barnes makes the point on commentary that he's either a starting nine or you don't have him at all and i don't disagree with that but also if you have peter stringer or you have isaac boss Mm. and one of those is going to play in your test match Hindsight's great and everything, but you go with Stringer, surely. Yeah, you'd have thought, but here we are. Mm. Instead, they bring in Owen Redden to start. Owen Redden's a brilliant, brilliant scrum off. Great player, right? Was one year into his test career, which I didn't realise okay. how late he got capped. Yeah, I didn't realise So he won that. his first cap at 26. Mind you, he played for a long time, didn't he? Yeah, so he had a while at Connaught, then went to Munster, then to Wasps. And okay, it was, this yeah. was in his Wasps era when, obviously okay. in the period where the Warren Gatlands, Wasps, 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 as I call them, in the Warren Gatland era, when they went on to win two Heineken Cups as well, he was, you know, the starting nine there and he was in great form. He'd been one of those kind of budget players they picked up, like... The you succeeded know, he's, to he's Rob Howley, wasn't good, he? Yeah, quietly good player, could could be a smart signing mm. and absolutely was. Yeah, I think very... Brilliant scrum off. Very Gatland signing. In that he hmm. worked hard, so Gatlin went, I can turn him into something. Yeah, and he had a point of difference in that like his speed of service was just exceptional. Yeah. Own Redden. And so he fought his way into the team. Probably one of the last non-Island based players to break into the Irish team from outside Ireland. Yeah. Yeah. Because they bring in the focus on Ireland based players a few years later. Sure. Uh, probably around 2010, 2009, which is yeah, an interesting thing. So he made his debut in the Six Nations the year beforehand against France, funnily enough, at Stade de France. And then manages to take the place over Stringer for this absolutely critical game at Stade de France again. It's mental. And look, we're sort of in the middle of talking about the Irish team and the players who did play in this game. But for a moment, I'd just like to discuss the players who didn't play in yes. this game. Yes. Because did you when you look you... at this French team that we're, that we're playing, we'll get into it in a minute, right? But you look at their backline and it's bloody star-studded we're talking Cedric Camon we're talking Vincent Clair we're talking already on Rougerie coming off the bench right and would you like to talk me through who Ireland were thinking the impact men who would come on and nullify that were in the back line 
mate, their backs <laughs> on the bench. Worth noting, none of these get on. No, Despite them being 20 points behind in the last 10 minutes. And Isaac, you sort of thought, none of these, none of these are, the, are the guy. None of these are the answer. Isaac, goddamn boss. <laughs> yeah. The boss, as they call him. Yeah, who's actually wh- who I'm going to go and see in Dublin. The boss, mm. Isaac. He's the boss only person at the, R- at the RDS. Yeah, yeah. It's at, the, it's at the RDS, you know? Like, if somebody called The Boss is playing at the RDS, it's Isaac. It's, uh, yeah, it's Isaac Boss. Yeah. Paddy the man Wallace. Yeah, Paddy Wallace. Um, did he think Paddy Wallace was going to come on and turn this game? At some... Or if this was a is... tight game, did he think, oh yeah, Paddy Wallace, he's the guy who's going to you know, outplay Yannick Josie on. So, Paddy Wallace, right? I don't know if I'm biased as a Wales fan. I best remember him for not giving that try-scoring pass and cutting inside himself. Agreed, in yes. The Mike Phillips, Wales Island game. Yeah, Keith Hill's outside him. He would have yep. walked it in and instead and... he went himself. People correctly pointed that Mike Phillips, Matthew Reese try that should not have been allowed. It should was completely stood. illegal. But Paddy Wallace had a chance to win that game in the last minute. And he blew it completely to go yeah. for glory himself. That's always what I think of when I think of Paddy Wallace. Me too. Paddy Wallace wasn't a terrible player by any stretch. No, solid but... utility back. Yeah. Played but... 10, 12, 13, 15. Yeah. You'd see him play at club level and you think like, oh, I, I see why they like this guy. He's you know? a player who makes sense to be on the bench because he is incredibly versatile. Yeah. Like, I he's can't a, help but look at it and go, like, was there nobody better? Yeah, he's a player that makes a lot of sense now if you're trying sounds. to play 6-2. Yeah, exactly. Because he covers everywhere, so you don't need to put an extra back I feel like it's like if Ireland called up Rory Scannell to be their bench fly-off in the World Cup. Sure, know? yeah. Like, Rory Scannell's a great player and plays yeah, in yeah. positions to a really good If he could play fullback as well, I suppose, as well. Yeah, exactly. But I don't know, man. It just doesn't quite sing to me. Paddy Wallace also has one of the most weirdly detailed Wikipedia pages out there. Oh, does he? Where there's like several paragraphs split by season on his entire career. Oh, interesting. Which is more detail than most world-class players have. Like, John Alomu barely has that level of detail. They have two separate sections. No, hold on. Four separate sections on his 2007. Ten siblings. No, but they talk for his club. There's a section on his club. Oh, wait. Three paragraphs on his club season. One on the World Cup warm-ups. One on three paragraphs on the World Cup and an extra. Is there two a paragraph on the fact that he didn't the get on the following season? Is this game mentioned on his Wikipedia? No, no. So they would have talked about game. Did he? Has he played yet in this World Cup? I can't remember. Yeah, he came on in one of the two wins, didn't he? But right, the most exciting thing happening on the bench here. <laughs> yes, my favourite certainly is a true legend of the game. The only question you'd ask if you hear this man described as a legend of the game is which game? Because okay. I'm talking about Gavin Goddamn Duffy. Yes. And I know which game you're referring to. It's Connor against Benetton from 20... 20- <laughs> no, I'm joking. No, Gavin Duffy, right? Incredibly rare player who is described not as rugby player, but sportsman on his yes. Wikipedia page. Because Gavin Duffy... One of the all-time greats was... No, to be fair, look, you can joke about Gavin Duffy because he was a classic Yorso club type player. Mm. Connaught legend. Yeah. Played 110 games for Harlequins and 174 for Connaught. 
it's become recently one of my favourite things to do, one of my favourite hobbies, mm. to hear a name of a rugby player who I watched at the start of my rugby watching career, who will have retired fairly early into that, but a long time ago. Mm. It's one of my favourite hobbies to hear one of those players' names and say, good player. Good player. And Brendan Williams. What, Brendan Williams. Yeah, he good was player. the guy we were having this conversation about when I first explained this complex I have. Was no, Bre- good I hear player. Brendan Williams' name and go, good We just player. do it a lot, though. Yeah, exactly. But you, you, you notice that now it's just a thing that you do. But Gavin Duffy, I saw his name and thought, oh, good player. Good player. I was a big fan of Gavin Duffy. Yeah, he was great. I remember him once scoring a great try in the European Cup where he did a chip kick for himself and I was like, yes, oh, Gavin I remember Duffy that. In class. I think it was against Quinns, but I might be confused because he played for Quinns. I remember but... the great excitement in about 2010, maybe 2011, mm-hmm. before the Six Nations when Rob Carney was injured. And they were like, is Gavin Duffy going to be the fullback for Ireland this year? Because he was the only fullback in the squad. But instead, they moved Luke Fitzgerald to fullback, and it was Coward's desperately boring. Luke Fitzgerald, honestly, who and even is he? Like, yeah. shut up. Look, I like Gavin, Gavin Duffy. Duffy. Great, Connacht captain as well. Yeah, being a captain from fullback speaks volumes. I tell you what, like, I can only picture him. And remember the purple Connacht jersey that they had for a season, the mm, away jersey mm, mm. that they played very regularly in. Yeah, no, I like, think he's the face of that jersey. Really horrible baggy kits they used to have. Because Connor were one of the last teams to seemingly take up skin-tight kits. <laughs> so, like, they still had quite baggy jerseys through to about 2012. Yeah, yeah. And Gavin Duffy was the king of wearing them. But then he went on to bloody abandon it entirely and wear completely different attire. Because you know what he did after he retired from rugby, don't you? He played hurling, didn't he? Gaelic football. Gaelic football, that was it. Gaelic yeah. football. He'd been a Gaelic footballer in his, as a kid. So, obviously, because he took high balls, everyone brought it up every time he took a high ball ever. <laughs> And then he went, you know what? I'm going to go back and play Gaelic football again. And went on to play for his county, Mayo, again. That's incredible. What a guy. Went on to play, like, obviously not to professional standard because there is no professional, you know, it's amateur sport. But he went on to play to a very high level of... Good player of GAA. Yeah, of GAA. Incredible That's stuff. Brilliant. I love how we've dedicated more time to Gavin Duffy, who didn't play. But yeah. then again, like if he did get on, we'd probably find ourselves playing Gavin Duffy World Cup. And he didn't get on, unfortunately. But Ireland do have another pool fixture. Gavin and Duffy presumably was... they'll get out of the pool and go to the quarterfinals. And yeah, they'll be fine. Far on from there and out. Gavin Duffy, the only Connacht player in this Ireland squad. Uh, I always loved Which... token Connacht player. Yeah, it says a lot about how they developed them. You know, yeah. how Connacht have changed as a region. Because, sure. or as a province, because they were used very much as a development tool at this point. Yeah. They sent other teams' players there in order to get game time and exposure so they could leave when they got good and go yeah. to a different team. And Ian Keatley was their star player with Gavin Duffy. Yeah. That's, that's what it was like. And they lost every game. They finished bottom. Even the Dragons used to beat them for bonus point. Yeah. And then slowly the RFU, IRFU invested in them, built them up. They won the league and have remained competitive ever since. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's good watching them be competitive. There's always a soft spot for Connor whenever I watch them play. I yeah, always kind yeah. of like secretly cheer for them a little bit because I know where they've come from, you know? Exactly, exactly. It Especially in Europe. Back then. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've always got, I've got a lot of time for Connor. The French team, however. Mm. Ooh, ooh, ooh. So France go into this knowing if they lose, they are out of their own home World Cup. The first ever home nation to be knocked out in the pool stage. 
with that piece of information, do you want an opinion on the French starting 15 that's named? Yes, I do. Good. Yeah, it's pretty good, isn't it? <laughs> it's all bon. right. C'est bon. We, we. Très bien. Do you want a, an opinion about their forward pack? Please. C'est grand. Oh, c'est gros. We, we. It is large. Just the names on there again, they they stand out. Like Rafael Imbanez is in as captain with his mm-hmm. bloody old school one handed throwing technique. Sebastian Chabal has earned a place in the starting team. He's leapfrogged Lionel Nale to start in the second row. And deservedly so. He's played well when he's been given he's played the opportunity. Really well. yeah. But the back row is what really stands out to me. And I think all three of these have really good games when we get into it. Serge Betts and Thierry Doucetois, Julien Bonaire. That's a world-class trio. It's great. This is with Aaron Ordecky injured as well. Yeah. They've got Nyanga on the bench. As you said, alongside Nale to back them up. Yeah. It's a huge, huge back row. The sheer levels of work rate across that entire back row are phenomenal. It's You've ridiculous. got Bonaire playing eight. Yeah. I'm such a huge fan of Serge Betson. He was such a good player. Like every physical contact he would find himself in, he would always dominate and he would put himself about so much. Like his work rate was just next level. What a mm. what a flanker. This was right at the end of his period with Beeritz. He goes to Wasps the following year. Wasps. Um to play with Owen Redden. Yes. The two that was why he left. Because yeah. he wanted just wanted to play with Owen Redden, and that was the only reason. It was really weird because he he spent most of his childhood wanting to play with this like weird Irish boy that he'd never heard of. It was like his yeah. imaginary friend was a kid called Owen Redden and he found out there's one actually playing for Wasps. So yeah. he went, hold on, hold on, hold on. I've got to sign with them. Yeah, Warren, It's like badly, badly drawn Roy or whatever it was it was called. We've talked about before on this pod. but That had Tommy Bow as a character. Had Tommy Bow as a character, yeah. yeah. Ten siblings. Yeah, that was that's a true story based on Serge Betson though. Yeah. So we have what is essentially, and Miles Harrison refers to as a knockout match. Yes. This is an absolutely huge occasion. And as you say, they go fully loaded. This French backline is hugely talented. I'd say they're all excellent, but Freddie Mish likes at 10. So Poitrano, straight off the back of his Uber Ramos display the yes. previous week, they bring Vance Claire back in as the change from the Argentina game, where he was not selected. Well deserved, though. Purely, purely because he has put a curse on Ireland when he was a child. Yes. And also he did kind of score four tries. Or was it three tries in the other game? Three in the end, yeah, yeah. Yeah, three. And a disallowed one, which wasn't especially his fault. But so well deserved, obviously. And again, like, we're slightly talking about this with hindsight. I say slightly, 16 years on, knowing that... Vincent Clair is one of the best French wingers of all time, and that's saying something because they had a few good ones. But he was always going to end up having the game he had, I feel like. Yeah, it was kind of the destiny for him, wasn't it? Yeah. You put in the narrative of him and Ireland, which kind of, I suppose, was starting here. You know, this is yeah. still this reasonably... This is two. Yeah. He'd been in and out of the French squad up until here. You know, yeah. he won his first cap in 2002 against South Africa, and then being a consistent in the Toulouse team that went on to win the Hiding Cup, 
twice in that period, 2003 and 2005. I just, I just got to mention who won the Heineken Cup each year. That's just kind of the way, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. This doesn't come up when we're talking about Wales. So yeah, he scored in the the final as well in 2003, but had been in and out the French team. Like it was just kind of inconsistent of when he was selected, when he wasn't. He was dropped for the previous year's autumn international altogether from the squad, and then. Brought in for the 2007 Six Nations when Cedric Haymans picked up an injury. And boy, did that go well for them. Yeah, I bet. I mean, obviously he won them the title, didn't he? Yep. So, yeah, and this is kind of the start of Vance Enclair going on to, as you say, become one of the great French wingers. Because he comes in for that, scores that try against Ireland. And then for this game, basically makes himself first choice off the back of that game against Namibia. And makes a difference in this game. Goes on from here, following Six Nations, he scores five tries in two games and slowly, slowly, slowly builds from there. You know, following year against Ireland, he scores a hat-trick. He infamously said in the post-match press conference, do you know the thing he said? What? This is, I'm skipping ahead to the following game they play against Ireland. Okay. But I think it's very interesting considering the teams here. Vanson Clare said, after he scored a hat-trick against Ireland the following year, I never would have scored a hat-trick if Shane Horgan had been playing. That's funny. That's very funny. Who was his opposite number that day? It was yet Jordan Murphy on the wing. Opposite Interesting. Him, That's... With Rob Carney on the other wing. Oh, wow. What a bizarre back for Gervin Dempsey at fullback. Jordan Murphy on one wing and Rob oh, Carney mad. on the other. Rob Carney winning his third cap. That's so sly with... on Jordan Murphy, though. Andrew Trimble at 12. Oh, my God. It was that period. Andrew Driscoll at 13. This is an insane backline. That is. You've got three fullbacks in the back three and a winger at 12. They've got like two people playing in the correct positions. Yeah. In the quarter line. That's incredible. Very interesting looking at that, seeing they've got three young kids in the team being Robert Carney, Jamie Heaslip and Bernard Jackman. Bernard Jackman? Is that the same age as those guys? All of them winning their first few caps. That's mental. Wow. But yeah, basically this was... Vincent Clair very much established himself as a first choice player in yeah, and of this course, game. Kind of, this is the start of him. Went on to be the top try scorer in 2011. Yeah, and top try scorer in the Heineken Cup. He retired as top try scorer in the top 14. He retired as, and was up there as one of France's best try scorers of all time. He's got 33 yeah. tries for France overall, which is quite a strike rate right? in a good what return. 67 games. Wow, one every not two games. bad at all. That's excellent. Yeah. Van Sinclair, what a player. So last point on the, uh, in fact, two last points on the French team. Mm. One of them being in the centres, they pick Damien Try for his boot specifically because mm. he's more of a kicking option than Yannick Josion. So they, they leave Josion on the bench and David Marty played very well in the previous game. So fair enough that they give him a bit of a run out. But the other thing, we kind of skipped over this, but Olivier Miu, who is their loose head yes. in this, this tournament, right? I just want a quick word for him because we enjoyed France in the 1987 Rugby World Cup, right? Pascal Bloody on darts. Are you getting Pascal on darts vibes from Olivier Mille? I am. It's like Pascal on darts if you played in the era where you couldn't actually punch people. Yeah, because what what Olivier? Well, Mille you have to be more doing... careful when you punch people. Yes. He's going very quietly about his business alongside two endlessly hard brothers next to him in the front row, knowing that if by any chance his captain at hooker needed somebody to back him up in a fight, which they, he probably won't because both Embenez and De Bronca are extremely hard hookers for France. 
it, but if hypothetically they needed some backup, you know that Miu would knock them out in half a second. And Ondarts very much did that in the Rugby World Cup final in 1987. And I got very much the same vibe from Miu so far this tournament. There are very few categories of people where you can describe them as phenomenally ugly and mean it as a compliment. Yes. But French loose head props, right? And you don't necessarily mean facially ugly. Yeah. Just like you wouldn't want, you there's want like, to avoid them. It there's all something costs. about his character and his energy that is ugly. In a good way. There's yeah, something exclusively like, a good way. It's not off-putting. Like you're not repulsed no. by him. You're sort Unless of drawn you towards it. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but you're sort of drawn towards his energy. But it is ugly. Yeah. Like, it is the only word I can find to describe it. It's not hideous, it's ugly. He hasn't done anything in this tournament to convince me that he is endlessly hard. He's just got a presence. He's just got a presence about him. Yeah, and Peter Davili is on the tight head as well. Pretty similar energy, but is more there so he can bend down and do scrums. Again, similar to Lomperu on the tight head for France in 87, you know. Yeah, 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 very much a mirroring front row, which probably says a lot about the identity of French rugby. This was his final hurrah for France. This was How the end of his career. For? Pretty much forever. Okay. Uh, he was one of those players that had quite a long career before he played for France. Okay. So he first played for Bourguin in 1995, but in his first cap in 2000. Okay, um, so we might get to see him in a future World Cup after yes. this. Retired yes. after this tournament with exactly 50 caps. Okay. Good on him. Good innings, that is. And I bet he secretly knocked a few people out, or just a very slight stud on the side, you know? He did indeed go to the 2003 World Cup, despite despite having surgery on his ankle like a month beforehand, which is supposed <laughs> to rule him out. <laughs> he doesn't need one of those, that's no. fine. No, he's just, he's just there to be he ugly and hard. He just needs a right hook, that's all yeah. that matters. <laughs> he uses it to bind and to punch. And also, right, the same you muscle. look at this game, and without spoiling it too much, as I say, Peter de Villiers on the tight head for France, I could have been their loose head, and we still would have absolutely dominated that scrum. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He is next level in the front row. He absolutely molests Marcus Horan at scrum time. It's unbelievable. You know, so Peter de Villiers has obviously gone on to be scrum coach of Scotland at the minute yes. now. He had... <laughs> Before he missed the 2003 World Cup because he was banned for taking cocaine and ecstasy. <laughs> he pled guilty to having taken the drugs, but said he didn't know he'd taken them. <laughs> a tight head prop who feels the need to do ecstasy before a major tournament. So it was and his class. It was after the last game of the Six Nations. <laughs> that year, he's supposedly done cocaine and ecstasy on the same night. <laughs> oh my god! Why did you feel the need to do and... the ecstasy on top? Yeah, I mean it's a hell of an evening, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, he's gonna be. I think maybe he wasn't banned for it. He was just still <laughs> feeling the effects of it, like he hadn't got over the hangover from it. That's honestly heroic. <laughs> so the he was very unlucky that he took it during the. During the Six Nations window still, because it meant World Rugby could step in. Because the French laws say they can only ban you for performance-enhancing drugs. So recreational drugs are fine. (laughs) So if he'd taken it like a week later during the regular season, he'd have been absolutely fine. Oh, man. That's a real shame. But that does also tell me 
that he did do cocaine and ecstasy in the regular season regularly. <laughs> yeah, 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 because he knew he could get away with it. That's the one time he got caught, because that's the one time he took it in the wrong window. That's yeah. incredible. No, oh man, so he did it four days before the final test. <laughs> He went on a night out in Paris, did ecstasy and cocaine. On a Tuesday night. I'm coming out of this feeling stronger and more careful. <laughs> he said, I have That's confidence so for the future and nightclubs are over for me now. <laughs> yeah, I've packed the booze in, lads. What do you yeah. mean? Why, what, you packed the booze in? Yeah, yeah. Ecstasy's fucking immense. Yeah, it's great. Had a great time. Nightclubs Makes are over you feel for me like now, a like... different person. Yeah, I mean, look, the amount I saw, I could have just done that at home. Didn't have to go out. <laughs> it's harder to go to bed afterwards as well. Fair play to him knocking the booze on the head, though. Yep. No, he didn't say that. He didn't say that. He said nightclubs are done for me. Yeah, but let's be honest. We know what that also means. He's not bothered drinking alcohol because if he only wants a mild buzz, he'll have cocaine. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, somehow Rafael Imbanez is the least frightening member of that front row. <laughs> That's insane. Like I was convinced that Rafael Imbanez, before we start this tournament, was like the most frightening rugby player of all time. Mm. Like him and Fabian Palouse, maybe. Yeah, but but they're now they are now third and fourth. It's truly some extraordinary stuff. Like so Raphael Imbanez, I just learned from just glancing at his Wikipedia page seconds ago. Dead. Loves fly fishing, rock climbing, and kayaking. It's a bit different from cocaine. You know, Those are like heroin yeah. and co- uh, ecstasy, isn't it? Those are sports for people who have like a really high tolerance for what they're afraid like aren't afraid of much, but mm. aren't scary themselves. <laughs> And yeah, yet, Raphael Ibanez is scary. Do you think he scares rock faces when he goes to climb them? Yeah, I think he does. Imagine hulking his frame up, though. No. He's 15 stone, and he's rock climbing. He's only 15 stone. And kayaking. Wow. But, like, it's packed into quite a short frame. He's five foot nine. If I was a body of water and Raphael Ibanez was kayaking on me, I would simply just part. I would let him do whatever yeah. he wanted. I just go, fair enough, mate. I am the Red Sea now. Good luck yes. to you. <laughs> yeah. Man, the joys of French front rows, eh? Mm-hmm. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Do you want to move in the direction of the game? Let's do it. This is a landslide, isn't it? 
I think this is a very quiet banger. I really enjoyed this game. I think this is a great, fun, good quality game. It's because it felt like such an occasion. The fact that this game, in theory, you know, we've mentioned the fact that the scoreline in the end was 25-3 to France, Mm. which is realistically a much higher scoreline than it should have been looking Mm. at these teams on paper because the Irish team's brilliant and, you know, so is the French team. But there have been three points in it the last time they played and exactly. three points in it the next time they played. Yeah, and that could have gone either way, you know. But the fact that here, France, with this incredible crowd behind them, the fact that they completely dominate Ireland in every facet of the game, mm. it feels like such an occasion. Yeah, the atmosphere is incredible. We've talked quite a bit on this podcast about how many sloppy atmospheres there have been, particularly the games in Cardiff and Edinburgh, and how a lot of these games haven't felt like big World Cup occasions. This really does. Yeah, This feels huge. This is the best atmosphere of the tournament, I think, by a long way. There's a lot of Irish fans there who know what it means and are screaming their heads off the entire way. Yeah. And then you've got even more French people knowing what it means because the stakes are even higher for them. Ireland have a second lifeline if they get a try bonus point win and win by a big enough points margin over Argentina the following game, they can still go through to the quarterfinals. France, they lose this, they're out, they're gone, they're dead yeah. in the water. So it's a huge occasion. Yeah. And spoiler alert, there's a guy I have written in my Man of the Match nominations just called Crying Frenchman During Anthem. Yes. So I think this is one of the best renditions of La Marseillaise I've ever seen. God, it's so, so great. And every single French game we've done on this tournament, we have just praised La Marseillaise mm. to no end. But I think this is the best of the lot. I it's think this is an all-timer so rendition good. of La Marseillaise. It's one of yeah. the most moving. It's one of the most just passionate. As you said, there's a guy crying in the crowd, belting out with all his heart. And most of the players are on the same wavelength. It's huge, the rendition. Shabal is going for it. You've got the whole pack in particular belting it out. It's incredible. And like yeah. the, the Ireland's call is weird, but once it gets going, the players are pretty into it. Yeah. And the crowd joins in pretty well. I'm not sure but, we've had a good Ireland's call in this tournament. No. Well, they do that thing again where they throw out the word last time. They kind of had someone mumble, Ireland, Ireland <laughs> beforehand. This time, they have someone say the word island twice, but in the tone as though they're starting it, though it's the calm of the day and yeah. the hour. But it says, and they have another island that says island in between two islands. Island. It's so strange. It's so strange because it means that twice you see players false start. Yeah. They, start, they hear the, the somewhat a voice start. You can go, physically see. Island, sorry, it's just island. We haven't started yet. Yeah. You can physically see Shane Horgan's brain giving up during that answer. Yes. But once they get going, there's enough of an Irish contingent that it becomes quite a good anthem. But it starts as an utter mess that I wonder, again, if this threw Ireland off enormously. Yeah, very strange. I mean, that's a good thing to blame it on rather Mm. than Eddie O'Sullivan. But yeah, it's completely the anthem's fault and that's the only reason why they would play badly. Mm. But yeah, so the game, it kicks off and immediately you just get the sense that Whatever Ireland do, there will be something. There'll be an answer to it from France. Yeah, like yeah. there's a couple of lineouts that France steal in the first five minutes. Chabal mm. specifically steals the first lineout of the game, and you go like, 
even the Irish engine room isn't quite woken up yet, you know? Mm. Just on a similar note, Ireland have a particularly big mall in the 22. The French managed to stop, not effortlessly, but the moment it starts rolling forwards, yeah. France just started to stop it dead in its tracks, which feels like a huge moment in just having answers for Ireland. Yeah, exactly, exactly. When Ireland have those attacks, you know, they have Damien Try then come up and just absolutely twat the ball downfield, you know? Mm. And, like, even if it's not particularly accurate, there's already a sense of frustration from Ireland of, like, oh, no, we're back here, we're, we're back to square one, we have to start this all over again. And preface, I'm going to preface this, I think Ronan O'Gara is absolutely fantastic in this game. Th- really? Yes, I think he is absolutely brilliant. I think he makes a couple of mistakes, but I think that despite the rest of his team, Ronan O'Gara, I think, is fantastic. Uh, I think that the rest of the Irish team are pretty woeful. And that includes, like, in the last couple of games, I've gone, you know what, I think Ireland are pretty shit, but I think Brian O'Driscoll's still amazing. I think they do extremely well to keep Brian O'Driscoll quiet. I think O'Driscoll has some really great touches. He has a few outstanding touches. I think the moments which the Ireland half. look most likely to break them down and win this game are all O'Driscoll. I think Simon B- Easterby is absolutely outstanding in this game. Mm, interesting. Um, I didn't really keep my eye on Easterby. His he did have a few good touches in work the turn rate, Yeah, the combination of big moments. You know, there's yeah. a few moments where Ireland needs something and Easterby, kind of the most unlikely source because he's kind of the work rate, clears out his own ball you know, makes his tackles kind of player. He produces them. He makes two yeah, breaks. Sure. He makes a huge turnover on his own line when the game's still in the balance. I thought he was immense yeah. and was a big part of Ireland. Here's the thing, right? As this game goes on, they're slowly taken out of it on the scoreboard, but there's never a moment in which it feels like they're not in the game. Yeah. Until maybe the last 10 minutes. Sure. And I think a huge part of that is Easterby's effect. I think okay. he's he's like monumental yeah, for Ireland. As I, I think O'Gara just knows exactly what game they want to play mm. and tries to kick them into the right areas of the park. And like, there's an early one that goes out on the fall when like yeah. France have dominated them in a kicking battle that ends up with John Hayes having to do a counterattack. But like, Ireland are not putting him in good positions and he's still putting in good kicks. But I think the moment maybe that you know France are going to win this game, and you don't know for certain, as I say, because it feels like oh, Ireland are in this game, even when they're probably mathematically not, is... Ogar puts that one kick out on the full early on and he misses his first shot at goal. He does, yes. And you kind of think, oh, if Ogara's slightly flaky, are they going to be able to pull this off in this atmosphere against this French team that are this pumped up and being this accurate? Yeah. They need Ogara to be 100 out of 100 rather than 8 out of 10. Yeah. Again, though, I I don't... I mean, as I say, the, the, I'm him not gonna, yeah. kick at goal... Him being is, 8 out of 10 for me is not... A criticism. Yes. You know, he has a very good game, but I think there are errors by him that if he could have cut them out or he hadn't made them, maybe I think that's entirely fair. stay in this game longer than they do or yeah. potentially go on and win it, be in a position yeah. in which they are competing to win it rather than trying to get themselves back in the game. I think that's an entirely fair assessment. But as I say, I just think the way he approached the game was absolutely spot on. I think tactically he's spot on. Yeah. I think in execution less so. Yeah. There's one point quite early on where he sits in the pocket for kind of a fake drop goal. Yes. And sticks up. I really like that. Really nice bomb. That's a, that's a tactic that would still work brilliantly today. I was wondering that. Why is no one doing that? Yeah. Because no one goes for drop goals anymore. Yeah. Which makes it even more unlikely if you did the the dummy call. But it's a brilliant and everyone chases. Kick yeah. That Shane Horgan wins back. Yeah. 
and results in Ireland getting up to the trial line from having been quite static on the 22. Yeah. He drops into the pocket and hangs it in the air. They end up on the trial line because of the awkward bounce. Yeah, because the Irish, Irish attack's shit, let's be honest. Yeah. And everyone charges up to pressure him on the kick, assuming mm. there is no follow-up. The fullback goes stamped in the post. No one's in position to take the bomb. Yeah, that's really it. Really smart. Boy. And I respect the fact that, yeah, Ireland... As I say, just don't have an attack at all. Like, their attack mm. is, is nothing. It's every time... N- not every time, but most times they go to the backs. Like, France just have them well marked. And so Ogara kind of just goes, okay, we just won't attack at all then. Uh, except in the second half when O'Driscoll has his touches and does O'Driscoll. Their, yeah, their attack is give it to O'Driscoll. Yeah, yeah. Which, as I say, starts to work in the second half. But, yeah. But the the thing is, as we said, we've just said, like, that's a really good way that Ireland get up to the try line. They hmm. do absolutely nothing off the back of that. They get turned over by Betson or Doucetois or whatever, and then, you know, find themselves 40 metres downfield because Damien tries poked it, you know, outside the 22. But the, again, there's you talk about moments where you just know, like, which team knows how to manage this, which team hmm. knows how to control it. There's a point where France are given a penalty quite early on mm. and Jean-Baptiste Elissard just goes, yep, and the mo- in the most confident way possible, taps the ball to himself. And because he's so quick to the breakdown, you think, oh, right, that's the right option, even though naturally you're going, he could go for goal. No, the, the thing is... I screamed right. no, and in my notes say, Elissard, no. And it turns out I was wrong. Yeah, which of us has position? Which, which of us has played hundreds of games at scrum half? Is that yeah? Thing? <laughs> this isn't me going. I'm I'm like uh, John Baptiste Alassad. We're we're exactly the same. But the amount of times that I have played third team rugby and gone because the thing about this is mm. Alassad taps the ball, is tackled, and then gets the not 10 penalty 10 metres further up the field. Mm. The amount of times I've played third team rugby and gone, well, there is a stipulation that has to be 10 metres exactly mm. or more. And so when you're playing third team rugby, if I'm at the mark, the, the point the penalty is given, and the opposition are still you know, in their defensive line, I will just tap the ball straight away because third team players are really slow to get back 10 metres. And yeah. they don't know that I'm also slow and that I'm not necessarily going to outpace them. So they would just tackle me straight away, and we've got a penalty for 10 metres further up the field. So I looked at El Assad there, and I was like, he's there. He, he should definitely go for this. And he did, and it was it was great. He got it. Where he got himself a penalty that was 10 metres close to the sticks. I was just thinking, you're on the edge of the 22. Take the points. This is a tight game. Who cares if you're 25 metres out rather than 15 metres out when you're taking this penalty? You're having a shot at goal. You've got a professional kicker. Like, actually, he's taking it himself, isn't he? He's the one kicking the points. Yeah. So maybe he wants it ten meters closer. Yeah, exactly. Fine. Okay. He gives himself a much easier kick, and yeah, also makes that gets it in the referee's head that Ireland are willing to give away those penalties. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, it's a okay. really smart bit of play. It's a really good bit of game management. I absolutely love it. I panicked in the moment and almost didn't like the risk. <laughs> Just take the points. Just take the points. Uh, it's it's really good because I mean in pure personality I'm a scrum half and I will always that's it I will always that's stick it. up right for this is the thing you've played hundreds of games at scrum half I've won the European Cup on Rugby Union Manager four yeah so exactly. I think you know that those two instincts have to cancel each other out yeah absolutely Elisard slots the penalty France go three 0 up and it's just well deserved deserved yeah and. 3-0 feels like the right scoreline for that period of the game. 
Yeah, even though Ireland are in it at that point. Yeah, it's really tight, but also mm. open. It sort of yeah. reminds me in a way of that Argentina-Scotland game from the following World Cup from 2011 that we covered on that series. Sure. In the, that game, no one is scoring a try. It doesn't look like it's a possibility. Yeah. And yet, both teams are making so much ground when they have the ball. Yeah. There like is you're getting one... the 22s pretty easily the entire way. Yeah, there is one point in the first half where it looks like there might be a try. The Cedric when... Heyman's break. Yes. It's pretty saucy, would you not say? He is a hell of a player. <laughs> I love watching it's him. It's a delight to be able to watch him again. I want him to come out of retirement just so... Yes. Like, even if he's crap, <laughs> I just want to watch him do sidesteps again. They just Can we aren't... invent a new sport where, like, over 40s French men get to just dance around with each other with a ball in their hand? There aren't many players like Cedric Haymans. Because you sometimes get those like lanky wingers who do like really languid sidesteps. And you sometimes get big wingers who are chunky and barge people over. Mm. And you get small nippy wingers, you know, who are really pacey and dodge around. You don't get many players like Cedric Haymans who are big, but play like they're tiny. Yeah. You sometimes get the other way around. You sometimes get the opposite and you get like a... Harry Robinson's the first one that comes to mind, but I'm sure there's far better examples of tiny wingers who play like they're massive. Sure. Kieran Williams is my favourite example of all time of this, <laughs> yeah. but he's a centre. Yeah. No, I know exactly what you mean. But Amor, in terms of sheer entertainment, was always world-class his entire career. Mm. That uh, try he scored against the All Blacks, one try at the end of the so good. So overpowered, that try. He has a a moment of looking like that where he gets on the outside of someone does the step and then the other thing about Cedric Haymans is he plays like a he's like a 70s player that's dropped into the present day yeah right down to the sideburns yes but he's he has that the way he passes that he swings his entire arm he's very like JPR Williams yeah where yeah. he does like his arm spin as he passes and he does one of those that like beautifully somehow goes into Try's hands when you're thinking there's no way he can throw that pass yeah God, he's delightful. Beautiful player to watch. Now works as a commercial officer for a fruit manufacturing company. What? Yep. Uh, like... Agros, who are a, a French multinational food company. Uh, he and... is a commercial officer for their fruit division. And at one point they interviewed a guy and he turned up and was Cedric Amor. <laughs> yep. They went, okay, cool. You can have the job. Yeah. What? They also sponsor Breve. Oh, that's cool. Did he ever play for Brief? Um, was it just to lose for us? Let's find out. Yes, he was. He started the Brief. Oh, brilliant. Played for Brief first year of his career, then went to Argentina. It's to good lose. that he's still got some involvement with the club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When we're in France for the World Cup, we're going to have to buy some Cedric Haymans fruit. Yes. So support him. And review it. Buy a Cedric Haymans banana. Yes, and play a game of touch with it. Yes. That's a great <laughs> idea. A touch banana. Whoa, yeah. that is um, illegal. So yeah, Hamas makes a beautiful break. France get into the 22 and they recycle. They go right out the other side and Clermont Prochino has another Ramos moment. <laughs> you look at this and you might disagree on this, mm. but you don't necessarily think it's the wrong option. No, I don't think it's the right option, but I don't think it's awful. Yeah, I think... He's entirely within his rights to go himself rather than passing to Claire here. I think he giving does. it to Claire, straightening to fix the defender a bit, and then giving it to Claire is the best option. I think you can't possibly but, say that's ever the wrong option, can you? No. 
<laughs> in any but circumstance. I don't blame him for going himself. Yeah, exactly. But ultimately, he goes for the corner himself. He gets the ball down without touching the corner flag, which Stuart Barnes on commentary points out was a great achievement at the time, which you take for granted now. <laughs> yeah. Even though commentators still point out that's a rule. <laughs> yeah, it still comes up surprisingly often. Yet, Brian O'Driscoll makes a brilliant tackle on him it's to drag him over the touchline. Shane line. Hogan, isn't it? It's Brian O'Driscoll, isn't it? Is it O'Driscoll? his ankles? Oh, uh, that sounds like a Brian O'Driscoll thing to do. But either way, what a brilliant tackle that is. This is the thing, though, right? If Shane Hogan was playing, Vance Clare wouldn't would have, wouldn't have scored. So <laughs> he true. clearly knew. I can't give it to him. Yeah, Shane Hogan didn't play, did he? Yeah, uh, he knew case. Vance Clare was going to score two in the second half. So, yeah. he went, well, he's not going to score a hat-trick because Shane Hogan's playing. All right, cool. So everything good that Shane Hogan does, particularly in defence, we'll just attribute to Brian O'Driscoll. Yeah, sure, sure. Cool. Sure. Yeah, Brian O'Driscoll puts in an absolutely brilliant tackle where, as you say, he drags the ankles into touch specifically. Mm. It's extremely calculated the way he does it. France, however, playing penalty advantage. They've got Gordon Darcy offside in the middle. They kick the points. Puts France ultimately 9-0 up after 20 minutes. Yeah. It feels inevitable as it happens, each individual penalty. It's like, mm. oh, well, France just clearly have all of the momentum here, you know. The other penalty of the three that we've kind of alluded to comes from a moment where... So, France have just, again, like, huge amounts of speed and momentum in their attack. Vincent Clair comes off his wing and has two really nice touches, one where he passes the ball, then he reloads and then makes a really good run. Whilst the Irish defence is so stretched, like, they give him a bit of space. Serge Betson makes an absolutely quality yes. carry in the middle of this, where like he he does a little spin move in the middle of it, but just like his centre of gravity is ludicrous. Uh, I'm not sure if they come offside to try and like get off the line and stop him, but as the referee Chris White blows his whistle, he calls over Ron Nogara and says, "Look, you shouldn't say that. You've spoken out of line to me there." <laughs> And Brian O'Driscoll is constantly saying, what did he say, sir? What did he say? And Rog is keeping tight-lipped the entire time. And then he goes, he said something very unnecessary there. Then Bod says again, what did he say? And Chris White, the referee, says, I'll tell you later. <laughs> he says, what did he say? He said, I'll tell you at half time or after the game. And he says, what did he say? Well, he sends him away. Then O'Driscoll turns around again and goes, what did he say? And he just looks at him and says, he swore. <laughs> and then Bod rolls his eyes in yeah. the most, oh God, rugby values is it. <laughs> way. But the thing is, you've heard Odegara speak. You know what he's like. He definitely did worse than just saying bollocks. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Let's face it. There's like one in three chance that he called Chris White a cunt. Yeah, oh, I mean... I don't think he'd stop there. I think he was probably very specific about his mother. Yes. And which particular brand of cunt he is? Mm. You know. (laughs) Is he one of the cunts that uh, Cedric Haymans now sells? Yeah. You fruitin' cunts. That that was a really funny altercation, I thought, between player and referee. Because, like, he talked to Bod like he was Roger's dad. What do you think would happen if Cedric Haymons and Lee Mears ever met? Do you think we get an automatic meal deal? Yeah, crisps would automatically become one of your five a day, bro. Yeah, but they're both they're both the snack in the meal deal. Yeah, fruit oh, and crisps. 
So would they be, are they now arch rivals? Yeah, I think so. I think we should have a fight for who I'm going to buy in my next meal deal. We need to yeah. find out if there's a rugby player who sells sandwiches. I completely forgot. We'll not mention this for like six months. I completely forgot someone brought up at an annual dinner that made me at Sells Crisps and says, no, I didn't. <laughs> I completely forgot that was a thing that happened. So, Lee, Lee Mears, right, he sells crisps. Yeah, he does. He sells them for, what, 3p a crisp? 11p. 11p a crisp, which yeah. is a rip-off. No, inflation. Absolute rip-off. Cost In 2007, it was 3p, but nowadays it's 11. Sure, okay. So, 11p a crisp, right? Mm-hmm. We need to work out when we're in France. We need to do our, date, our research. How much does Cedric Caymans sell his fruit for? Yeah. What are you yeah. getting a better deal on? Yeah. Lee Mears crisps or Cedric Caymans fruit? Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, if it's like What's the better meal 25 cents per fruit, then, yeah. you know, that's a pretty good deal. That's but not bad at all. That's not bad if at it's all. Like, I think that's better. If I it's think like I'm leaning towards Cedric Kmart's fruit here. You know? Yeah, yeah. We'll find out when we're in France, won't we? Yeah. Or if we, we have will. any listeners who are extremely well versed in the Cedric Kmart fruit market and would like to tell us the value of one fruit from Cedric Kmart, please let us know. Please do. Please do. But yes, that, that Ron Nogara moment happens, and I've just got rid of my notes. Hello, Ruddy Data, because I've seen that before, <laughs> and I know exactly where I've seen that before. It's amazing how often that guy comes up. Yeah. Did you see Clement Poitrino's volley? He, was it Poitrino? I thought it was El Assad. Oh, was it El Assad? It does go really well, it's so it probably is El Assad. An unbelievable touch. Yes, like I don't even count it as a... Like, so I'll knock the ball on the ball's kind of loose. It? Yeah. Like a football and free kick. He sees the ball kind of spinning on the floor. Like it's not bouncing really. It's just kind of, it's not quite stopped. Yeah. It's fairly static on the it's floor. It's like, you know that, that challenge where you have to nail a drop goal with a spinning ball? You yeah. Know that, that yeah, yeah. Is, that's, that's the motion it's doing. Yeah. It's sitting so, up. Elisard, I think, but you might be right as Pratrono. He looks I think up, it is Elisard. And it's the exact motion that a like a footballer lining up a cross does. You know, yes. where he kind of like slows himself down, then speeds up his momentum again in yeah. order to kind of like connect with the side of the boot. So it's completely deliberate. And he sends it spiraling perfectly <laughs> over the Irish defence. It then bounces, 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 and is so almost going out on the five metre for what would have been a 50-22 yes. from inside his own half. It's almost the greatest accidental kick of all time, especially the 52 law has come in by that point. Two things, right? It definitely was Elisard because, like, it was such a perfectly placed kick. And as you say, with the technique and everything, mm. he's definitely the player who's done that and thought that through. But I just wrote down Poitrino because I looked at the French backline team sheet in front of me. I was like, yeah, he's the one who would do, like, a, a volley. Yeah. He's the one who would do that. But you're right. It was definitely Elisard. That's It it's was beautiful. So, also... If that went through the sticks, would that have been three points? I suppose so. Yeah. <laughs> it's a drop kick, isn't it? Yeah. Touch the floor. Yeah. It's, well, essentially, it's a place kick. It's a place yeah. kick in open play. Yeah. I presume you can do that. You can place a ball behind you and someone else to, like yeah. NFL style, where you put it down for a kicker to come in. You know what? I'm asking so many questions in this about like things I don't know about rugby and fruit. <laughs> Often the same questions as well. Can yeah. you kick an orange? Nobody's ever done it. Nobody's ever tried. If you drop kick an orange through the posts, do you get three points? I don't think so. No. Depends if you're playing playing a game you made up called kick an orange through and get three points. Yes, you do. Yeah. Providing 
the rules aren't Cedric aligned. Cedric Hamon plays that now, actually. He does, actually. He plays he opposite Gavin it. Duffy. Yeah, yeah he, he sponsors that whole team. Yeah. But yeah, that's a bizarre point. Uh, when France eventually get the ball back, Poitrano obviously kicks the ball out on the floor. Yeah. But like so, France from here just start to put the huge squeeze on, mm. much like Cedric Kamar's puts on his oranges. Yes. And you start to get the feeling of, even though they're only 9-0 down, there isn't really, there easily couldn't be a way back for Ireland from here, that they get into a position where they've started kicking the lever off it, which before yeah. they haven't really stopped, but it nets them. It leads to Horgan having to carry the ball out, five beats out from the line. France then win a penalty and they go for the corner when they've been kicking everything at goal and they do either side of this. And this is when Easterby comes up with his huge turnover, which is potentially game-saving at that point. Yes. To keep the minute because it felt like they were just being blown away for a moment. Yeah, yeah. Nothing, I think, sums up how little Ireland can get into the game no matter what they do. Like, the Poitrano shit kick that works. Do you know the one? Please enlighten us. So, Poitrano just randomly hoofs the ball and it goes pretty much perfectly horizontally. It doesn't get off the floor, like, really at all. And it just falls off an Irish player. I think it's Jerry Flannery who's retreating. And Sebastian Chabal is stood like 20 metres offside. But because Flannery accidentally makes contact with it, Chabal picks it up, passes it to Serge Betson, who makes a break. And it's like, mate, Poitrano's just come up with a really shit bit of play and you've made like a 30 metre break off it. And they score three points. Yeah. This ultimately leads to points. Yeah. By the way, just I just want to quickly say, fuck you. Because... You in that in that France Namibia game, you pointed out the similarities between Clement Poitrano and Thomas Ramos. And now I watched that game and I was like, oh my god, I am watching 2019 era Thomas Ramos here. Yep. I now can't unsee that. Moments like that, and his long pass that he tries to throw to Freddie Michelac, where Bod comes in for the intercept, and it's a mm. beautiful read by Bod. And if not for Michelac just being weirdly reliable all of a sudden and changing his angle to be inwards onto the ball at the last moment, Bod would have been under the sticks yeah. because Michelac has bailed Poitrano out there. And I was like, why am I watching Tomo Ramos? I always thought he was just the, this, inex- not even inexplicable, this just reliably class, world-class fullback was what I thought Poitrano was. It turns out he's an absolute dickhead. This is the worst thing about doing this podcast is it has ruined Clement Poitrano forever for me. Yeah. And don't worry, he's class. He's unbelievably good. Because by the time we get to 2010, he's cut most of that out of his game. Yeah. And I wonder if that's the year of Tom Ramos we're now witnessing and why he's getting away with literally everything he tries. But by that point, he was just an unreal player who had this skill set to do mad things. And he only did mad things when they were on. At this point, he was doing mad things at every opportunity he was given. And it has made me resent him in a way I never did before. You coined the phrase, put Tom Ramos in jail for yes. every time he doesn't. I'm getting that constantly with Clement Poitrano, that those two should be inmates together. Yeah. <laughs> what are you in for this time? Oh, I did another through the legs pass on my try line. Yeah. Another third time this month. You need to stop that, mate. You're going to spend more time in here than Peter de Villiers. He's still climbing <laughs> up the walls. Good Radiohead song, funnily enough. But Clement Poitrano 
just the vilification of Clement Poitrineau in these games because of things he does that are ultimately good is just <laughs> so dickish. It's hugely disappointing. I, I won't forgive of, you for pointing this out. Speaking of dickish, right? We do have what you're talking about, Ronan O'Gara. Mm. Uh, the Ronan O'Gara moment of the match, I think. Okay. Where at 9 0 down, Ireland have a very hopeless attack that is going absolutely nowhere. Like, <laughs> their, their attack, attack is dreadful. It's just nothing. Like, they don't look like. They look like they've just met. Like they're all individual yeah. kind of players who've just and met. The thing is, is it Brian O'Driscoll makes a break? No, Gordon Darcy, that's it, makes a break mm. in the lead up to this. And off the back of that, Ireland then just go, okay, what do you expect us to do here? And just randomly fling backwards, which to their credit are all backwards, but like they're in completely random directions. Like they catch them all, but mm. then nobody knows which direction they're meant to run in. It's awful. And O'Gara goes enough of this shit cash out yeah and he just drops into the pocket and from 40 odd meters nails a drop goal yeah it's brilliant it keeps him in the game because yeah ultimately otherwise you know it's the only points they score in the match yeah and it is opportunism from ogara yeah what i have written down at that point is ireland after that really don't deserve three points but ron ogara does yes agreed agreed his kick is so brilliant off the back of an absolute shambles of an attack from his team. Smart, considered option. Weighed at what was happening. I wish more tens nowadays would do this. Would weigh that up. They're now undeservingly in the game. Yeah. They can kick on and win from there. And it just keeps them going. It keeps them in it. It's yeah. huge. Yeah. Ireland love to shoot themselves in the foot before half time, As the incident where I get to write down in my notes, I love Dave Pearson. Because I do. I love mm-hmm. Dave Pearson. But <laughs> I also love David Wallace for an extremely heroic thing, which arguably, if somebody else was giving it, could be a Dick of the Day nomination thing. But I'm really here for David Wallace just randomly walking on Sebastian Chabal and getting penalised for yeah, it. Yeah, he just stands on him. There's a ball, Shabal falls over, and because he's Shabal, he rolls in the way, knows I'm massive, I'll get in the way of as many players as possible. And David Wallace goes, I've had enough of this shit, and just stands on him. Just walks on him. He walks into the mall with no urgency to actually push in it, and just tries to style out the fact that he wants to stamp on Shabal by doing so. And he just steps on him, like uses him as like a footstool, and goes, oh, sorry, mate. And Dave Pearson just goes, no. Sticks his flag out and goes, yeah, penalty against him. How many times do the captains get told off by Chris White in this first half? Oh, constantly. Chris White is so pissed off with both teams. Yeah. And by the second half, it tips over to being mostly Ireland. But it is just relentless, the amount of hatred he has towards both teams, but particularly the Irish. Yeah. So the last play of the first half comes of... Michelak putting up a fantastic bomb in the air, which Ireland kind of fumble backwards. Shane Horgan drops it backwards a few times and then realises all he can do to rescue the situation is just run into touch on his own mm. five-metre line. So France from the line out, and it's a really smart but obvious move. They throw it to the back, then on kind of a peel line, Chabal just runs into the opposition yeah. 10 or the direction of. It's a good and move. They, yeah, it's a good move. Get your You've biggest got Chabal, player against their smallest. Give it. Give it to him. Give him the ball. 
Yeah. And obviously, for, uh, Ireland just completely panic and give away a penalty at the breakdown because they just know France are probably going to score if they can mm. string together a few more phases and they just aren't ready to have that happen to them yet at half time. So they just crumble, give away another penalty and go down, go in 12 3 down. Kind of takes the game away from them. Yeah. It's kind of that after Agaras just wrestled them back into it single handedly almost, you kind of feel for the team a bit that Ireland are a good enough team to be in this and to be winning this. Yes. But every time they've been given position, they've blown it to the point in which we haven't even had anything to say about it because it's just silly areas, it's unfreighting attacks, and then they'll cough at the ball. Your reflection at halftime is pretty much identical to mine. Yeah. Because I've written down here, just like, these Irish players are so good. How can this be anybody's fault other than Eddie O'Sullivan's that they're playing like this? Mm. They've clearly just not been coached at all. Because look at that Look at that team that they've got. Both yeah. the forwards pack and the back line are both brilliant, and they're not in this game at all. My other big reflection at halftime was this game really made me think about how burnt out I am on current men's rugby. Really? But I think a huge part of that is because we get through that entire first half, right? We get to the end of it, and there is almost no discussion of refereeing decisions. Mm. There's a little bit of, is Poitrano in touch or not when that's being TMO'd? That's not about the refereeing decision. That's about, you know, you're discussing what actually happened. And at one point, Stuart Barnes on commentary says there's nothing in it on a late tackle on Ronan O'Gara. Yes. Yes. And, and there's a Easterby does one on Michelac, two, two on Michelac. Oh, sorry, actually. no, it is on Michelac. Yeah, yeah. Yes. But there's like, there's moments where they go like they don't get penalised, and a pundit, a commentator goes, "There's nothing in that. That's yeah. fine. That's all the discussion of refereeing at all in the entire yes. first half." And much as people keep talking about how we need to speed the game up by having less TMO decisions, I think the real thing is we need to get away from this culture in rugby that's persisting where it's all referee chat now. Yeah. And it's incredibly boring, but I actually, when I look at it, I think so much of why, and it really stood out watching this game back, because this is a great test match where both teams are going at each other, and I then didn't mind when they pulled away, and it's not an anti-Irish thing. You know, I didn't mind that France pulled away, because it was an entertaining game. Two teams that were equally good going at it, and one team happened to get better, you know, as the game went on, and the other one was making mistakes, even though they're fairly levelly kind of pegged. There was no refereeing talk. Yeah. And I think back to that Champions Cup final between Toulouse and La Rochelle, right? I remember someone working it out that the person that was on screen most in a game that included Antoine Dupont, Roman Untermack. Winnie Antonio, you know. Yeah, you know, you've got enough of that. Distinctive. um, Will Skelton. Will Skelton, yeah, that, you know, La Rochelle team had plenty of stars. Yeah. Yeah, completely blank on the Yaman, the Fibotia, Aldrete. You know, some of the biggest and best players. Oh, yeah, Greg Kino, Vito, right? Yeah, um, Jonathan Dante. Yeah, you had Kaino and Vito playing the last games against each other. Yeah. It was huge. The person that was on screen most in that game was Luke Pierce, the referee. And someone worked it out that, like, Luke Pierce was on screen for, like, 22 minutes and the ball in play was, like, 36 minutes. Yeah. That's which is, like, ludicrous. as a comparison, you know. But here's the thing, right? That naturally then breeds a culture where... When I so I didn't watch the uh, Toulouse Leinster game live because it clashed with the Women's Six Nations, and yeah. I watched that instead. Um, because women's rugby is better than men's rugby. Yeah, partly because this culture doesn't exist there. Yes. But when I this is now obviously this is going out a week down the line, so it's a bit you know going back yeah, to yeah, weeks. Yeah. But when I opened social media and was having a look, 
the only things I saw people talking about was the refereeing decisions. It was the Andrew Porter yeah. tackle. It was the the cards that were given. Those were the things that I was seeing discussed. I wasn't seeing anything about the rugby itself. I didn't get any impression who played well, who played poorly. I didn't get any impression of how the game was actually going beyond what the refereeing decisions were. That was yeah. all the talk. And part of this is TMO culture that's crept in. And because we're spending so long on TMO decisions, people are going, well, that's the interesting thing. Yeah, people thing. formulate an opinion there and then yeah. feel the need to kind of broadcast it, including commentators and you know presenters yeah. and stuff. And as you say, that doesn't really happen much in the women's game. And like the, one of the reasons why I loved the Six Nations just gone so much is none of the presentation has been about the referees. Yeah, you know, Because it, there comes a point where you just have to accept that rugby is a game where human referees either will spot things or they won't. Yes. Um, because it's such a stupid game with so many rules that if it was correctly officiated, it would be completely unwatchable because yeah. so much goes on. 96% of breakdowns have a penalizable offense in there. Mm. But if you penalized all of them, why would you watch it? It's yeah. horrific. So you either need to be on the, in the camp that everything should be penalized and we should be only listening to the referee's whistle and seeing no rugby at all, or just going, yeah, well, sometimes things get missed, but let's talk about the piece of skill, such as that yeah. brilliant Brian O'Driscoll tackle or whatever. What or I- Mauro Otoje being off his feet, but convincing the referee he was on his feet by popping back to his feet later on. That's a good bit of play. Mm. But I think it's interesting because I think something I've very much aimed to do, and we've aimed to do with the squid rugby stuff in general, mm. the videos in particular, is to not talk about refereeing decision and try and move sure. things away. And I think what he's ended up doing is it's added a, it's become a separate thing where people go like, oh, well, look at the extra analysis and the, the squid videos. And then people complain, why do you talk about refereeing stuff? And it's become a separate thing rather than changing the conversation, yeah. uh, which is an interesting thing that I think needs, I don't know, I want to think about more because it was really clear to me watching this game of how, how much more I enjoyed it for the fact there was no referee chat. The yeah. fact that, and also I think there's something in the way that because teams have got so good at holding onto the ball, big moments stood out more here. Sure. So Heyman's break stood out better for the fact that France went one phase and recycled it rather than played 20 phases. And I don't think that's a problem. I think that's a natural evolution of the game. And I yes. think that's great and should be celebrated. Agreed. Um, but I do think it's a factor in that there were more, there felt like more moments there. But equally, right, there were still controversial decisions in this. They weren't talked about. They weren't really discussed. Yeah. The thing you say about women's rugby, right, the World Cup final last year, there was a red card in the final that was actually quite contentious in many ways. Yeah. No one was talking about it afterwards. They talked about no. what a great game it was. They talked about the moments at the end. They talked about the actual line-out steal, at the, the Jonanawu line-out steal at the end. They talked about did England make the right decisions like, along there? At the time, people did talk about that red card. Mm. Like at the time of it happening, you know, mm. at the, at the minutes around it happening, did say that's controversial, that's soft, that's whatever. And then they parked it. They yeah. then went, okay, this game is brilliant. That's Stacey mm. Flula tries incredible right i finished watching so i watched super saturday in the women's six nations and it was brilliant like the skills on show and everything were presented as such you know it was a fantastic day with three brilliant games that i really really enjoyed well two and a half brilliant games but then the next day i watched the the la rochelle game on bt sport and just how draining it then was hearing Austin Healy question every refereeing decision. Yeah. And like when something happens, he goes, oh, that's a yellow card offence. He's got to give a yellow card. Why is he not given a yellow card for that? And then, you know, the team kicks to the corner and he goes, it should be. It's cynical, blah, blah, blah. It's like, shut up. If you think that's a yellow card, go out and referee the game yourself. Yeah. And this seeps down, right? Like you start questioning that yourself because you hear commentators doing it constantly. Yeah, it becomes normalised. And- 
we've praised Miles Harrison and Stuart Barnes a bunch for many reasons on this podcast over here. Yeah. I think we took them for granted an awful lot in the noughties and the early 2010s. But there is almost no refereeing chat here. Yeah. No more Stuart than is Barnes, necessary. Yeah, yes. exactly. They'll mention it in the moment, but they don't get carried away. It's only for the things that are being replayed five times that they yes. talk about it. As I said, there's there's three moments in the first half where they mention the refereeing at all. Yeah, Otherwise, it takes exactly. it for granted, which is the way to do it. Yeah, And the way I started enjoying rugby far more once I stopped questioning the referee and just accepted it as a kind of yeah. like act of God that you can't control and That's no one it. can control. You know, um, when, once you learn that teams do re- analysis on refs and mm. how to win penalties out of them, when you view that as a good thing, it massively changes your perception on players. As I say, I've spoken about Mauro Otoje. He knows how to play every single referee in the Premiership. Yeah. He knows how to make himself look legal in front of all of them. That's what makes him maybe the best second row in the world. Yeah. Well, okay. So, like, you don't spend ages discussing what would have happened if the ball had bounced left rather than right over and yeah. over again, right? Like, it's a force majeure. It's just That's something a that happens. Really good. You just have to accept analogy. it as part of the game. Like, it's just, it's a thing that happens. And sometimes you'll go, oh, it's very unlucky that the, if that ball had set up for them, yeah. ooh, maybe. But you don't go, ooh, let's spend 20 minutes discussing it and then arguing on Twitter and then getting up like a detailed framework of, it's not interesting. And no. I, I wonder as well. So there's a rumor currently going around and I have no inside knowledge of this. You know, I've spoken to people that were involved in the old regime, whatever, that Sunset and Vine, who have produced the coverage for anyone unaware of not just BT Sports coverage of the Premiership and European Cup, but they also produced Viaplay or Premier Sports' coverage. They produce S4C's coverage. They've produced some of BBC's coverage as well, but very little of it. They produce some of BBC Wales' stuff, but not um, like the BBC Six Nations coverage. They've had almost a monopoly on club rugby coverage for the last few years. They've produced a hell of a lot of it. I wonder if they are potentially, there's a rumour, they are losing the rights to be the or the contract to be the company broadcasting and controlling the premiership next season. I wonder if that is going to lead to a swing and lead to a change in things. I bloody um, hope so. Because they do the, I think they do a lot of the ITV coverage as well. I'm not 100% sure on that though. It's exhausting. And since there's been no one challenging them really, other than the BBC's in-house team, it's meant that they've built up this enormous profile. And you look at the, the best coverage in the game, right? Is Dan Sports' coverage. By such a long way. And we've talked about it a number of times on the podcast, but so little refereeing chat. And I remember last year, there was one game, I think it was Argentina, Australia played, or maybe it was one of the autumn games. But the question that they asked the question where there was a game where Australia had really been on the wrong side of the referee, where they'd been penalised an awful lot. And the question that our man Greg, during, during the presentation, but he, yeah. good old Greg, asks, isn't... Is this referee right? Is there something wrong with him? He says, what could the Wallabies be doing to get on the referee's right side? Have they said yes. something wrong in the huddle somewhere? That's a brilliant question. Have they addressed it wrong? What should yeah. they be doing? Have they said sure something to him pissing off the referee? Yeah. yeah. Like, what picture should they be giving the referee instead? Which means you're talking about the game itself. Yeah, you're talking about the players. And it's the just like, I, yeah, it was so clear watching this game in particular because it's a good test match. It's a really good test match. It's brilliant. This. Yeah. And I feel like I haven't been seeing that because I've been watching people just talk about refereeing and yeah. excuses for people to talk about refereeing instead. And it's been hugely frustrating as someone that genuinely loves rugby and loves yeah. watching it. It's why I've lent so much heavier on watching women's rugby and being into women's rugby over the last few months because 
it feels free of that. And I'm sorry to have gone off on the soapbox yeah. for ages here, but genuinely though, and I know this is on the record, and I probably shouldn't say this, but you've just answered a lot of questions about why men's rugby is burning me out a lot of the moment. Yeah. Like I didn't quite realize what how big an impact that was having, and why that makes men's rugby feel so repetitive at times. Yeah, and I think a lot of it started in that Lion series in twenty twenty one. Is this um, therapy? <laughs> yes, that Lion series was toxic as fuck. Yeah, I hated it. And because it was constant discourse, like there was more yeah. discourse than there was rugby, and because the games were so stop start, and because again, do not go off on the point I made with the, the Claire episode, but like. The TV direction I thought was very poor, which led to people finding it even more boring and having even more time to talk about refereeing decisions on Twitter. So not to get too caught up in this, but I think it's uh, because obviously people don't want to hear a discussion of why modern men's <laughs> rugby is at this point of burnout for many people. I think it's not just us. Yeah. Um, and there is something in the fact that like covering it for a living, you're around it constantly. It changes the way you watch it and the way you look yeah. at it. And it's just a natural part of the game and i think everyone i know that i need reminding of why i love it that's what it is because i I hope the world cup does that i hope world rugby doing the broadcast in-house allows for that yeah and i don't mean any of that as a slight on sunset and vine they've done a wonderful job on the whole of course it's just like you wish they'd back off on the refereeing chat you know yeah the last time i said this of pundits one of them challenged me outside for a fight so we'll see how that goes but it's Hey, I've added him in this podcast. <laughs> it's just like, I think it's just, I've really missed rugby being about rugby rather yeah. than about the one bloke in the middle who no one can control. Yeah. We've just really aggressively agreed with each other for about 10, 15 minutes hey, probably there. Hey, it's work for blood and mass. <laughs> yes, as all of our listeners know. Should we talk about the second half of this game then? Because yes, we, we enjoyed this game. I think the first half is great. The second half is a bit of a procession and still entertaining. It's the delivering of of an inevitability. That's a tongue twister. Yes, it really is. It's an inevitable event coming home to roost. It does start with Bod doing a delivering an absolute rib tickler on Poitrino, which is fun. He absolutely nails him at one point early on. John Hayes loses his boot in a mall and yes. stops to pick it back up, at which point Ellis Arles makes a break down the blind side with Vincent Clair, which is why you don't go and pick your boot up. You just carry on mauling with your socks on. Idiot. I don't mean that. John Hayes is a lovely man and a really good rugby player. But there's another point early on mm. in, the, in that half where France are very have one player very gradually retreating back on side and I'm not sure quite who it is but it's presumably one of the smoking front row and Owen Redden just throws the ball at him and just mm. goes right okay we'll take a penalty out of that and Chris White is having none of it and goes no blows his whistle and says you you've thrown that at him I'm not giving you the penalty I'm not going to reward you for that next time you do that it's going to be against you which as long as he's you know consistent with the way he conveys that is entirely fair enough but what I love about that is Brian O'Driscoll then contests it and says, that's lazy running, that's lazy running. And again, this is a brilliant bit of Stuart Barnes's tiny bit of ref chat. When Chris White says, no, it's not lazy running, Stuart Barnes comes, comes up with a one-liner. If that isn't lazy running, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's lazy walking. <laughs> that is a there really is. good bit of Stuart Barnes. It is. Yeah, one-linering. This World Cup has made me really miss Stuart Barnes. Yeah. Which... Uh, or it's this not a sentence anyone's Bonds. ever said. Yeah, yeah. But 
So they find themselves shortly after ECB makes that break. They're massively on the front foot. France scramble to clear it eventually. And it gives Ireland a line out just outside the French 22, like 20 odd meters out from the try line. Yeah. And you think at 12-3, this is the moment they've got to execute. And France pop up and steal a line out. Jerome Fillon comes out and steals it from nowhere. Quietly plays very well, Tion, by the way. Yeah, he does. He does. He just does the job asked of him. Yeah. It's like he executes his role perfectly. Good system playering. But yeah, just steals it from McCallaghan's hands. And it feels, again, like a big moment of things slipping away. Yeah. It's almost identical to the mall that they stop in the first half. Mm. But they just get at the line out one intervention and you feel the Irish momentum cease and everyone kind of do a, oh. Is it in that passage of play that Elisard gets his next penalty as well? Because I think shortly after they eventually go down, they get to the, they get a mall. They get into the 20, you know, into the opposition half, just outside the French 22 from the other end. And yeah, from a mall, net three points. Yeah. 15-3 15-3 at this point. So they're really Which stretching that lead. It's kicked whilst we are watching the worst camera angle of all time. Go on. Well, so the, the camera is positioned while he's taking it on one touchline. We are watching an angle from the other touchline where you can't see the post because they're basically flat. <laughs> you can see one post. So you can't see if it goes on this side towards us of the post, fine. If it goes misses the other side, if it goes through the post, we've got no idea. <laughs> We can barely see Elisard. You can barely see the ball. It's the worst camera angle I've ever seen on a shot at goal. There is some strange camera direction in this game, isn't there? Yeah. There's that weird above uh, shot where it would show the right-hand 22-meter line and Mm. then like a couple of lines from beyond there. And every time I thought the 22-meter line was halfway and I kept going like, oh, if if this skipped ahead a little bit and then I'd go back 10 seconds and go, oh, wait, no, that's the 22. And I was really confused by the camera direction. Since you brought it up, right? You know how you're a rugby league squitch? I love rugby league. You love rugby league. I love camera direction. Yeah, I so, keep forgetting you can have more than six tackles in this sport. So, so did Ireland. <laughs> so there are two moments of camera direction I want to mention, right? Mm-hmm. One moment I love, Chris White at one point blows his whistle, doesn't show which side he's given the penalty to, he just blows it. He starts lecturing the players, at which point we cut to Thierry Dusatois lying on the floor at the bottom of the ruck. And his face, as he's completely unsure and trying to listen and trying to <laughs> understand the second language, if he's about to be penalised, he's just won a penalty for his jackal attempt, is priceless. It's brilliant. <laughs> it adds so much having that massive close-up on him. Am I about to argue says. with you? Yeah, exactly. And he's kind of like, he's kind of looks slightly nervous. It's like, you know, like he's having the Eurovision results announced. At that point, what... Topical for this weekend. At that point, what Dusatois really should have done is just called Miu over and just gone, right, okay, he's not sure which way he's going to put his arm up yet. Yeah. Just stand over him and make him decide. <laughs> Close up on his face adds so much. Yeah, and he goes, uh, uh, seven was on his feet. Yes, he was on his feet. <laughs> But in the wrong side, psych. <laughs> and at one point, the camera direction splits the horizontal, which, like, I find it always a really boring thing to talk about when people are doing, like, hashtag film criticism. But sometimes they've got a point, because sometimes it's really baffling. Oh, which I don't know if you understand. You know the, the rule, Not the horizontal clue. rule? No. Basically, it's this idea in filmmaking that you would always shoot things for something from one side, because otherwise you've got no idea. Mm-hmm. So, like, if you've got someone on the left and someone on the right and they're having a chat... 
you don't then cut to a shot from behind where because it means one's now the one that was on the left now on the right and one that's now on the right is now on the left and okay. sometimes it's like really discombobulating it's like an action scene or it's a you know something like mm-hmm. that it happened in the last fantastic beast there's a shot that like went mildly viral where you can't tell which character's which because they they split horizontally go the other way around okay and they do this at one point and it makes it look instead of like a jackal like someone's now lying offside and the board's been turned over when it hasn't been they've just cut to the other side of the rock and it really discombobulates you for like a second before you work out what's going on. Just a sloppy moment. Thanks and for generally, the film. I, um, yeah, generally, uh, like uh, I am totally okay with education. that. I think it's like it's something like Martin Scorsese breaks it fairly regularly because he knows what he's doing. You know, it's like you need to understand the rules in order to break them. Sure. Some people use that as like a lazy stick to beat people with. I don't think it should be. I think it's like a fine and valid technique if you're using it as a technique. Here, I think it is an error because it's confusing as a heck. Fair enough. Fair enough. I'm glad you got that off your chest. Yes, because otherwise I would have said to someone in Sainsbury's tomorrow. <laughs> you still can. Yeah, I might. I might. might be spoilers when this podcast comes but out. But I might just play just this podcast that. to them. Yeah. Yeah. I was trying to idea. explain something to someone the other day. And I went, Actually, I just told the story on the podcast once. I'm just going to send you the link. <laughs> find the time code. Yeah, I did that before, but it was about the dog on the pitch. I'm not even joking. It was somebody who didn't even like rugby. I just explained that once on a podcast, we mentioned a dog coming onto the pitch, and he said, that sounds incredible. So he listened to it, and he loved it. Uh, right. that's, that's all he's heard of the podcast. It's probably um, for the best. It's been downhill yeah. since then. <laughs> yeah, it really has. French scrum's pretty good, isn't it? it like, yeah, as the Irish front row starts to tire, they absolutely start murdering them. A lot of modern props, right, are taught to never show when they're tired. You're taught, <laughs> taught to never show that you're fatiguing. John Hayes never had such coaching. <laughs> no. You could tell the moment he was cooked, and he probably stays on for 15 minutes longer than that. Here. Yeah. You didn't need a GPS to tell when John Hayes had run himself <laughs> into the floor. There's one scrum where Ireland have the put-in and it goes so badly that the ball squirts out the side and Serge Betson, whilst still bound on the scrum, boots it left-footed into the Irish 22. It's incredible. On the open side, it's it's phenomenal. I don't know how that's physically possible for your scrum to be going that badly, but that that the flanker, whilst still attached from the scrum, is kicking 50-22s. I don't know how that's possible. They bring on Sarzewski pretty early as well, who I think makes an mm, impact. He does. Which is weird then when you see him in the middle of those two incredibly hard violent <laughs> rowers, and you've then got this like large disco boy. He is anything but ugly. Yes. Uh, to be fair, though, he looks like the one who should do ecstasy. Yeah, that's, that's definitely true. He's the one who's in a nightclub late at night. So, He's not working as a bouncer as well. <laughs> as Ireland try to exit, we soon come on to the point that this game is best known for. Yes. So, fascinating moment of leading, actually, really, where there's a great line pick, but they run into the referee. Yes. So France find themselves with a scrum from what could have been a promising attacking position. Yeah. Pretty much on the 22. And... I think, do you want to know what I think happens here? Go on. In the meeting, right? So Freddie Mishlack at fly off, pulls on his backs, and he's like, I've got I've got a few ideas for plays. <laughs> Has anyone else got any thoughts? DSP, Rangi, hands. Anything else anyone wants to add? <laughs> and a back heel cross kick. <laughs> and meanwhile, completely unrelated, right? 
Cedric Haymans and Van Sonclair are having a casual little chat. Cedric Haymans happens to mention to Van Sonclair what he's thinking of doing when he retires. And he's saying, like, oh, I fancy some oranges, maybe Is some this bananas. Is Squarespace advert? Yeah. <laughs> Van Sonclair's talking about running this charity and being a pundit. And Cedric Haymans like, you know, I really like bananas. And I wish there was a way that we could perhaps kick them into gear and kick the production of bananas up a level. And Mission Lack hears that and goes, hold my goddamn beer. Cedric Haymans goes, I'm not selling beer, I'm selling bananas. Hmm. Because Mishlak pulls one of the most incredible bits of skill in the Rugby World Cup in general, not the 2007 Rugby World Cup, in the entire history of the Rugby World Cup. It is an undefendable piece of skill. It's phenomenal. And, like, you've not seen this since, really, have you? No. No. Like, you've not seen it effectively since. That it will always work. Yeah. Right? But it's so hard to pull off with that level of accuracy that no one is going to continue to try it. Please describe it to me. So, the ball is in the scrum, right? Michelac waits in the fly-off position. Vincent Clare stood directly behind the scrum. As the ball comes out, Clare peels back onto his wing. The ball comes out to Michelac at fly-half. Obviously, Gervin Dempsey at fullback for Ireland starts tracking across towards the open side. The ball, the scrum is on about the 50-metre mark. Dempsey starts tracking infield, of course, because, you know, that's the only way it's going, only with players headed. There's no way he's heading back to the blind side and not being caught by the flankers are all breaking off now. And besides, they've still got Trimble on that wing, so they should be okay. At which point, Michelac, whilst facing towards the open side, does the most glorious, beautiful, drops it onto the outside of his boot, banana kicks it, so it spins round and lands exactly in Claire's path, no one is chasing, no one is expecting it except for Vincent Clare. Because no one thinks this is possible as you a rugby the outside boot. It's practically his heel he hits it on. Yeah. It's so far on the outside of his boot. Again, we will have both seen this try a yeah, number of I'll times in many out. years. I've put it in like five videos plus at this point. Yeah, exactly. But I'll tell you what, the slow-mo in front of Michelac angle, I've basically never seen a kick that looks better on a camera than that before mm. so because you very specifically knowing the trot what happens from it you dissect the way he drops the ball his body language as you say his whole body is curved in field he's throwing a dummy pass with his eyes and his body in field whilst dropping the ball onto his foot here it's absolutely gorgeous here's the thing right this is the try that ultimately really, in real terms, knocks Ireland out of the Rugby World Cup. Yeah. This year, if we've talked so much on this podcast about history repeating itself in the lead up to this year's World Cup, they're playing Finn Russell, Ireland. Yes. Odds on Finn Russell replicating this. That would be hilarious. But yeah, Just because it's, it's Finn. My favourite angle on this is actually the one they play after the conversion, where okay. I think it might actually be after plays restarted again. From the sideline, like alongside Van Tonclair. Yes. Where you can see everything quite flat on it. They've got a camera kind of watching the scrum largely. Because you see the exact off. moment it opens up for Claire, don't you? Yeah, yeah. And you kind of then see all the other Irish players peel off round because they're not paying attention to this at all. Hmm. You know, you don't even look at Van Tonclair as a dummy runner until yeah. well after the ball is bouncing up into his hands. God, it's so amazing. Like 55 odd minutes into a test match that they've found the one way to score a try, the one gap in the defence is by doing that. 
and mm. manipulating it that hard. It's one. It's just one of the best things about international rugby is when a defence seems unbreakable and then somebody comes up with something that just... There's no way they can defend that at all. There's nothing yeah. they can do. And to Ireland's credit, for all the shooting themselves in the foot they've done, as I've said before, they feel immensely level and they've defended solidly. Yeah. Like, there have been two moments in the entire game where France have looked like they might score a try yeah. prior to this. One of them... David Wallace flops over and kills the ball instantly so they don't get the <laughs> chance. And the other one, Easterby comes up with an enormous turnover. Yeah. And so it just means that like they have done such an effective job of understanding the breakdown to kill their chances when their defence is starting to look stretched. Definitely. There hasn't been an inch of space. The old moments of space they've had, they've shut down with O'Driscoll making those tackles, almost getting that intercept and managed to shut down the move as well. And then it comes out in this moment of pure magic. It's yeah. just amazing to watch. Do you notice Michelak celebrating the try? Yeah, He celebrates it, Claire doesn't. He turns to somebody in the crowd and starts waving and puts the thumbs up. Double, his thumbs up to Double him. thumbs up, yeah. Do you think that was the coaching staff he was saying that to? I, I thought that yeah. might be the attack coach that he's saying, I mate, so. you fucking smashed that. Because I love that if that's what's happened. If he's credited that to the attack coach or the analyst, I or didn't some, think somebody. he was crediting that. I thought he was going, "Yeah, I'm class." Of course, I was coming off. <laughs> it was which is him, equally felt, possible. Yeah, it was clearly him doing it to someone he knows. Yeah, you know, to either another player or to a coach. I thought he was thanking, yeah, an analyst or an attack coach or somebody for the fact that we've practiced that meticulously and knowing exactly when it'll open up in the game. Maybe I'm just biased by the fact that it's Freddie Michelin. It is Freddie Michelin. He's not crediting someone. He has form, yes. But one of the great Rugby World Cup tries. It, no, it absolutely, absolutely is. And it just opens the game up a bit. You know, it's pretty much on the hour mark. And suddenly France have a bit more hope. And they have a scoreline that is now so solidly in their favour that they start to play a bit more, I think. Mm. And... Other than one penalty where they go for the posts and it's Elisard's one miss, really. Almost uh, immediately afterwards as well. Yeah, it comes off the off the left hand upright. Like at that point they go, okay, you know what? They're not getting through us. Let's just go to the corner from everything. Mm. Very interesting that Stuart Barnes repeatedly makes the point that they want to avoid the blacks, which does sound like an RFU board member, you know, trying <laughs> to move, pick a neighbourhood to move into. But also... Very interesting knowing what goes on to happen. Talking about, oh, they desperately want to avoid the All Blacks. They don't want to get them. That'd be the worst possible draw they could get. And they need that bonus point in order to avoid it. Oh, that is funny, 16 years on. They go to a mall. Paul O'Connell gets yellow carded for persistent mall infringements coming in at the side. I'm not going to argue with it. No, not at all. Paul O'Connell was very frustrated at that point. Yes. It's not like the previous game where he loses his head against Namibia. Yeah. He's just kind of stupid and off his game completely. The French Maul was a huge weapon and he was trying to get away with cheating and yes. the referee kept catching him. It's not even a rush of blood to the head. It's no. just it's he thinks he professional can fouls. That's he's it. got yeah. caught for three professional fouls and he's probably committed like five more that he didn't get caught for. That's it. Yeah. But the other thing is by and this point, because he's given a few away, the referee is looking at him in every maul. Yeah. But like how else are they going to get into the game? Yeah. Other than by cheating. It's worth risking at that point. Yeah, yeah you're 20 absolutely. points free down. Yeah. You don't want to risk it getting any worse. Definitely. And at this point, like, Ireland are completely rolling the dice and everything. There's yeah. a point where Rog tries this like chip out of his own 22. And it's not a bad decision at all. But Elisard covers it with ease. And Mishlak kicks on the front foot, which is great. Gets a yes. five-meter line. And so comes 
despite what I just said about hating refereeing chat, there's a moment of the referee being a proper bell end. <laughs> Go on. So, Jerry Flannery. The Jerry Flannery moment. Yes, with Julien Bonaire. Yes. I don't know how to talk about this and do it justice on air because it is so inexplicable when you see it in front of you. So, Jerry Flannery tries to throw in the line out. Five meters out from his own try line. It kind of just goes along the floor. He doesn't really throw it at all. Yeah, the does ball it? comes out of his hands too late. Like he doesn't let go at the right point, so his hand yeah. kind of slips. I watched it a few times back, and the ball just goes straight and like falls on the floor in front of him. Like it's a pure flukish mistake that happens one yeah, in five thousand yeah. times you throw a ball in. Yeah, it's like you know sometimes you see a scrum off drop the ball as they're feeding it into a scrum very occasionally, and then it gets taken against the head. It's pretty much that, but hmm. the hooker's equivalent. And Julian Bonet picks it up and flops over the try line. But Chris White doesn't really, just kind of looks at it and goes, oh, that's not right, and blows the whistle as soon as the ball leaves Flannery's hands and therefore can't award the try. It's a really weird moment, that. It really is. I think this try should have stood. There is literally no reason Technically, it should have. Yeah. yeah. It's just so that Chris White blew the whistle too early. No, he didn't blow it too early. Bonaire oh. scores it, and White then is at the tail of the line out. He walks over and says to Dave Pearson on the near side, the touch judge, what happened? He says, ah, bloody uh, stuff in it. And Chris White goes, no, I'm not having that. And then walks the Taylor line out and says, we'll do it again. Which is not a justification for not awarding a try because you don't no. like the try. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I told this story before on the podcast, but I had a friend who went and went to a football game for a team he supported and said that they lost 2-1. And then it turned out they lost 4-1. I said, yeah, but I didn't like two of the goals. <laughs> That's what Chris White does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the difference is he's got the whistle. But, you know, sure enough, Ireland escape. France get the do ball they? back eventually. Yeah, France do. get the ball back pretty quickly. And Elisard goes, I wonder if we nerfed that kick that Michelac did a bit, would it still work? <laughs> yes. Like, if we did, like, a pretty basic remake of it, I so obviously because that first try dominates the internet in the Rugby World Cup circles mm. uh, so much. I never seen this second mm. second act of it, the sequel before, but it properly got me out of my seat when watching this because holy shit, Vincent Clair can play. Yeah, it was that man knows how to score a try, and Elisard equally. Beautiful dink, beautiful identification of the space. Knows exactly where he wants it to bounce in order to sit up. Lovely. And then goes straight into Claire's hands. And this is a hell of a finish. Because Vincent Claire was not finish. a big guy. Stuart Barnes mentioned how much he bulked up and he's put pressure on himself to bulk up over the last year to play international rugby. Mm-hmm. And it pays off. He bounces someone. He then managed to squeeze between two tacklers to somehow get the ball down over the line. How the hell does he keep his feet in play there? He has two men trying to drag them into touch. Yeah, it's phenomenal. It's utterly world-class. And as you say, the dink from Elisard is inch perfect. Yeah. But Claire to ride like two or three tackles in about two yards, bit of space between the touchline, him and the try line. It's utterly world-class. So the front page of Le Keep the Mm -hmm. French daily, you know, the major sports paper in France, the day of this game, said Le Heur de Vuti, which is the moment of truth. Okay. With a picture of Sebastian Chabal with his arm in the air. 
the Parisian, the front page purely just had a picture of Sebastian Jabal with the word conquer. <laughs> but I think this was it. This was the moment of truth with the hand in the air. It was yeah. kind of the moment of things clicking for France. Because yeah. up until then, they've been quietly good. And then suddenly they pull something. Where the Ireland previous try done. was a moment of magic. Yeah. This is a moment of them just getting on top, them yeah. wrestling control. Yeah. Ireland are so flat after that. Like there's yeah. there's one point where France kicked the ball back to them and Stuart Barnes points out as Dempsey takes the ball in, like Ireland are out on their feet. They're walking back to get on side because they are that just mentally drained and just they they are mentally not in this game at all. Mm. Yeah. For the last it's ten just minutes. Like, Gordon Darcy does one of the stupidest passes I've ever seen where they're coming out their own 22 and he's got Trimble outside him unmarked. And instead he does like a stupid behind the back reverse ball to a Driscoll. Oh yeah. Well, he's like, already doing, making mate? half a break. It's like, yeah, hey, just pass the ball, make more yards. Just don't just do the simple thing. But Ireland looks so flat. And so yeah, they just starting to give up by those last 10 minutes after that try. O'Driscoll does a brilliant cutout pass to put Trimble in space at one point when, again, it looks like there's going to be an intercept. And because it's Brian O'Driscoll, he just gets away with it because it's clearly all very mm. calculated. No, the other thing to just note on that Claire try, sorry, that I didn't yes. bring up, Bernard Laporte's reaction. Yes. Where... Re- does a little now, dance. I'm not very good at lip reading, nor am I very good at French. So put those two things together and I should struggle. But very easy to read that he is saying the word wee, <laughs> like he's enjoying going down a slide. Yes, he has or a great time. Prison. Yes, it was. It was good when they speculated on commentary about how he's going to do well in his new political roles. Yes, <laughs> yes, very, very fascinating. Yeah. Uh, he was just asking for the Nintendo console to come out the year beforehand. Nice. Um, of course, yeah. All of this pales in comparison to. The true moment of the match is when off goes the fantastic Jean-Baptiste Elissard and on comes Yonel, Yonel, Yonel Boxes. So at full time, the PA system plays a song that was a huge hit in France at the time called On El Choix à Paradis, which okay. is We're All Going to Paradise. And the crowd sang along and it was about like, you know, good atmosphere moments, lovely stuff, etc. However, I would argue they were already in paradise because they got to watch Lionel Boxes play rugby. A true god of rugby. What more can you ever want? I felt so blessed when he came onto the, the screen. And I was like, oh my God, I'm watching Lionel Boxes play international rugby again. It was gorgeous and glorious. And unfortunately, we've not really seen him do much in this World Cup because they've only given him like 16 minutes off the bench between two games. But... Just... But we are coming up to that start. Exactly. What a player. What an episode that is going to be. Exactly. It's down on ESPN Scrum that Jean-Baptiste Elissard gets a yellow card, but I was pretty sure it was Damien Try. Yeah, it's Damien Try. Yeah, it's Damien Try. Yeah. Sound. Yeah, Damien Try gets a really stupid yellow card when he took... Aren't given a penalty? He turns and kicks the ball away, like rubbers it to the sideline so they can't play quickly. Gets done for like 10 metres for kicking the ball away. And then Redden goes to take the quick tap, at which point Try just goes, no, and tackles him one like one yard further back. And then Chris Wright's like, yeah, fair play. You're being a bell end. Go to the bin. It's fair enough. And yeah, it makes no say- difference. Yeah, but- literally nothing. Literally nothing happens. What are you? Happens at all. 
off the back yeah. of it. I mean, Bod throws a pass into touch, and you're like, yeah, literally nothing's going to go oh, off. Oh, yeah, Ireland that's today. the moment where it, it all falls apart. The point the BBC published a blog article the following day called, Where Are You, Brian O'Driscoll? Oh, my God. Wow. The answer is Paris. <laughs> that's pretty much all the notes I have on the game. Just job done, France. O'Sullivan out. He, yeah, he just signed a new four-year contract right before this World Cup. Do like you sell him Yep. Oh my God. I wonder if he'll get to see it out. Yeah. <laughs> I do wonder. Right, let's wrap this up. Let's, 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 let's. So, should we do Dick of the Day? Yes, it's Clement Poitrano. Like, since you explained what Clement Poitrano is in the 2007 Rugby World Cup, I don't have a specific reason, but I have staggered them through this entire podcast. Like, Clement Poitrano does this stupid thing and gets away with it. And as I say, screw you for the fact that you have illustrated to me just how stupid he can be and just how he constantly gets away with it. How, Clement Poitrano, you play like a dickhead. Uh, Speaking of dickheads, uh, um, mine, look... the thing is, I went on a massive tangent about how we need their referee chat, but mine is Chris White just allowing <laughs> a try because he just didn't like it. Fair and enough. I think that is the biggest bell end thing I've ever seen a referee do. Fair enough. And I'm not, it's not, there's no, if a referee goes, I don't like that try, I'm not having that. No, you're a dick of the day. I don't care. I don't care if Clemmer Patrono is literally playing. <laughs> I don't care if O'Gara's on the field for 18 minutes. I don't care if Flannery does that line out in the first place. You're getting that. That's true. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Player of the match. I think this is surprisingly interesting. I wonder if we might be about to go for the same person based on absolutely nothing. I found it very difficult to pick one, actually. I thought Vincent Clare was brilliant, but it didn't really feel like the right game to give it to a winger, personally. Sure, yeah. The only Irish player I thought worthy of a mention was Ronan O'Gara. Then I've got three front runners. One of okay. them is Serge Betson. Because, okay. yeah, yeah. as I say, every time he's involved, what he does is not just positive, but like, oh, Jesus, how has he done that? Is he going to kill someone? You know? Oh, in fact, I should have actually written down Peter de Villiers because he was murdering them in the scrums. That's, true, and that's, true, that's yeah. a huge reason why they pulled away so much. I can't believe I'm about to say this. I'm not giving him man the match, but my runner-up for this is Frederick Michelak was unbelievably really good and controlled the game. And I feel unsettled by that. And I feel like morally I can't give it to Freddie Michelak. Not because I don't think he's a good person, but just because I wouldn't be able to live with myself. Yeah, for what you stand for. thinking was good, yeah. you know. But man of the match for me has to be Jean-Baptiste Elissard. He controlled everything in this game every passage of play that he had any say in he did the right thing with and made turned it into a positive contribution for france so elisard was just world-class for me today i am in complete agreement also elisard for me which yeah. again i never thought i'd end up saying but it's it brilliant. is the quintessential scrum french scrum half performance it is it truly is this tiny little bastard silently being exceptional and yeah. occasionally picking on the opposition forwards. yeah whether it was scraps whether it was quick taps whether it was what else rhymes with that eating baps, baps with fruit in them but like and his kicking game and just his whole skill set and everything was so perfectly suited to what france needed i thought so many moments of magic stand out i thought absolutely best by the field He's seven from nine with his goal kicking. 
which is huge, huge factor in the winning this. He was the official man of the match. Okay. We both agreed on that. Yes. I am nailed on. Yeah, the player of the match, Jean-Baptiste Elisard. And that brings us to the end of another episode. We have recorded this really late at night. <laughs> it's almost one in the morning now. Yes. And it leaves me with just one thing left to do. What was? What is that? To ask you, Will Owen, and you, other people who might be listening to the pod lawyers cast, and the lawyers and Carly Rae Jepsen, and anyone else who might have joined us along the way, that guy from the Top 14 coverage, I ask you all to come back next week when we will be looking at, and this is an exciting one, South Africa v Tonga, another one of the talked about iconic remembered games from this world cup i'm not doing a bit when i say this i've told you this off air mm-hmm. this is the game i'm most excited to talk about in the 2007 rugby world cup I, I said this before we started this and i said this cut to you like a week or so ago this is the game i am most excited to watch if i'm honest i mean i i, I enjoy finals anyway as an occasion i'm really looking forward to canada japan Oh, interesting. Ever the rugby hipster is bloody squidge. Bloody hates <laughs> Ireland, but he has to say a hipsterish thing. Bloody rugby league squidge over here, loving yeah. Tonga. <laughs> of course you are. You want Papua New Guinea next. Yeah. It's woke, isn't it? Because neither of us want to watch Fiji v Wales. <laughs> no, no. Oh, France, New Zealand, actually. France, All Blacks. That's the other one. Anyway, good. that is irrelevant for now. In the meantime, all that remains to be said is... Oh no, this will be going out on the twelfth, won't it? Yeah. So that'll be bloody, I'll be sat doing Zelda at this point when this goes live. Oh, nice. Have nice. fun. Nice. When I will have seen Bruce Springsteen twice by the time this comes. What out. a week we're having. Yeah. It's what mental, a week this will be. We'll probably have both caught COVID in between. <laughs> bloody Isaac Boss. We'll have bird flu. I'll right. let you know if I see Ian Henderson there. Please do. Please do. I bet he's there though. I'll see you next week for more. Bruce Springsteen. Nice. Cedric Cayman's fruit is really expensive. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.